You already know what time it is. Welcome back in to the NFL with AJL, episode 41. We're live on a Tuesday. I know just a little bit after 7, dealing with a little bit of technical difficulties, but we know the show will happen, and it must go on. We're absolutely packed on a Tuesday. You guys could have been anywhere else in the world, but you're tapped in right here with me on the show. As we get started, y'all make sure to like the stream, subscribe wherever you're out on YouTube, share the stream with everyone that you possibly know that would enjoy the show tonight. Of course, the QR code in the corner of the screen or at the NFL with AJL will get you all social media platforms, every bit of podcast content. Get at us on social. Make sure you leave us a review on podcast platforms as well. Again, subscribe on YouTube. Y'all have been running it up on the numbers for me. Absolutely no doubt as the show continues on. Hope everyone's had a blessed Tuesday. Hope your weekend was solid. You soaked up some great NFL week two of football. CFB week three college football was insane as well. Packed lineup tonight. Colorado survives Colorado State. We clearly know now that Alabama has a quarterback problem. Georgia and FSU barely win in their games this weekend. We got some 0-2 panic teams. All the takeaways from week three of the NFL, or excuse me, I believe week two of the NFL. My apologies. Are some teams 2-0 and or are they 2-0? and A little bit of a contender segment there as well. And then we've also got our week three power rankings. Y'all get in the chat, get in the comments. Let me know what you guys are feeling tonight about the show. Any topics you might want me to throw on here, reply to your comments as we get into episode 41 tonight. Not going to waste any further time as we had the double header on Monday Night Football. Of course, my New Orleans Saints, you guys see this show. You guys already know I'm a major fan. So with the Saints winning in a prime time national television matchup, you already knew I was going to start the show here. Saints beat the Panthers 20-17 to in a little bit of a concerning fashion for the New Orleans Saints. We know that Bryce Young has struggled, obviously, in his first week he did with the Falcons, and the Saints still do a damn good job at holding him to what they did. We knew that this offense of the Carolina Panthers wasn't really going to be an offense that really was out there pushing for a ton of yards or actually just making things happen with an Adam Thielen, possibly with a DJ Chark. Of course, we got a Hayden Hurst as well, and you want to see the Panthers use some of those weapons, at least they're veterans, right? to some of their advantages for a young guy like Bryce Young. But let's go ahead and dive right into the takeaways of the game. Of course, the Saints lose Jamal Williams here, which is really, really tough. Of course, we hear he's going to be out for a couple of weeks. And Jamal Williams was a big signing for the New Orleans Saints in the offseason. We know he was supposed to provide that running back depth as Alvin Kamara was supposed to miss the first few games of the year. And Kendra Miller was out too, but he should be getting his way back into the lineup as well as the Saints are going to go on and face Green Bay. But the Saints need Alvin Kamara. The Saints damn sure need Alvin Kamara right now in this offense. We see that Tony Jones was good when the line did make some way, and I love his two touchdowns. you got to appreciate when he steps up in the moment here for New Orleans and absolutely does his job. Alvin Kamara's versatility is really going to help take that pressure off of Derek Carr and allow us to hopefully run those screens that we were so deadly with, but that requires offensive line play. And offensive line play has really been the biggest thing here for the New Orleans Saints as they're now through the first two weeks of the NFL season. You see that Derek Carr in week one was pressured 50% of the time and still had over 300 yards. Of course, he had the interception as well. He does throw another interception in this game, but the offensive line gives up another four sacks. It's absolutely atrocious. We've got eight sacks given up in two games, and that's not going to cut it. Again, we gave up another four sacks in week two against the Panthers, just like we did against in week one against the Tennessee Titans. And, and I will say that the Panthers defense, I expected it to be okay this year. They only returned 40% of their starters or the snaps played by the previous roster. That's by far the lowest in the NFL. So they have a ton of new faces. Bryce Young's dealing a lot of 
with a lot of uh, a lot of new faces just being in the NFL in general. Frank Wright coming in as the new head coach, of course. So they've got some things here, um, you know, that are, that are going to be interesting or excuse me, at least with the roster, with the snaps played. So you want to see the Saints play better against a team that's not super familiar. Yes, they do, of course, present Brian Burns in the occasion, um, but the O-line has to be better, as I've said in previous times. If we want the New Orleans Saints, and if the fans want the Saints to get back to what they were, no, it's not going to be the Breeze and the Peyton era because Carr and Dennis Allen are clearly not that, but it starts and ends in the trenches, just like the Philadelphia Eagles were um, – you know, starting it and ending it in the starting it and ending it in the trenches against the Minnesota Vikings and even doing their best to stifle, obviously, against the New England Patriots as well. The trenches are everything here. And with Derek Carr, who is a guy that can move decently outside of the pocket, I like when he gets out of the pocket and kind of start to make plays. I don't like the errant throws like we saw the horrible interception in a triple coverage. But Derek Carr is athletic. He can move outside of these pockets, but you don't want him to have to necessarily move if he can get that protection. I'd like to see the pocket presence be a little bit better as well, of course. But overall, talking about that interception Derek Carr threw, I think something that I think that's something that can really get coached out of him in the coming weeks. Now I feel like I am putting a lot of faith in Dennis Allen to coach that out of a guy like Derek Carr, who he has a ton of faith in, but I damn sure love the way that the offense is taking these deep shots. Now we saw in the later days of the New Orleans Saints with Drew Brees and not a whole lot of air yards out of his arm, Sean Payton having to cater to that with the screen plays, obviously Michael Thomas getting called slant boy. It was the Saints fans drooling in the in, in the later years of Drew Brees because we didn't have a lot of plays downfield. It was a lot of the 15, 16, 17-yard, 80, 85-yard drives. You simply cannot win like that week in and week out in the NFL today and especially with the way the offenses are now. You look at him giving uh, Derek Carr here, giving Chris Olave a chance, giving Chris Olave an absolute chance on that catch, um, obviously where he bobbles it, brings it in one-handed. Some people might not like the throw, but that's literally giving your wide receiver one a shot to make a play. And Chris Olave comes up big because the offense really started to kick up after that point. Rashid Shaheed, man, continue to cook with him, continue to utilize him. We saw it last year, two touches, two touchdowns. We see it this year, two key plays, two key moments in both of the wins that the Saints are thankfully 2-0 and at this point in the season. You love what Rashid Shaheed is doing for this offense. He's really like our Tyree Kill, or to keep it more Saints, like our Ted Ginn Jr. of recent years, right? Now, you do you do see Derek Carr engineer those two touchdown drives of 70-plus yards. Later on, that ultimately win the game. You have the big throw to Chris Olave, like I mentioned. You have the big throw to Rashid Shaheed as well. But the O-line, again, they have to bring things together in order for us to get back to that point that we were at because Derek Carr's pocket presence, sometimes he does hold the ball too long. Sometimes he is a little timid in the pocket. Give me some of that preseason versus Kansas City Chiefs O-lines, New Orleans Saints. I need that for our guy Derek Carr out there. I absolutely love, absolutely love the Taysom Hill packages in this game. We're finally working him back into the offense, or at least for this game, it felt like he was getting inserted into that offense, more RPOs, the power runs, the handoffs, the passes. He he really just keeps the defense guessing, right? One of my main complaints with the Saints in recent years was they would bring Taysom Hill in and immediately run the power run with him. And the league started catching on to that. But when you bring him in and just have him do a handoff, or you bring him in and let him do an RPO, or you bring him in, bring him in, let him throw a pass, or run that power run, it keeps the defense guessing because, hell, you even see the Saints at some point last night bring him out of the RB1 role, leads the team with 75 rushing yards, especially late in the game when we turned him back into that RB1. I absolutely love to see the creativity there from Dennis Allen actually using Taysom Hill 
in a vital time, I felt like, where Jamal Williams does go down. We don't have Kendra Miller. Tony Jones did get his two touchdowns, but it still was 12 carries for 34 yards. But I'm not complaining because Tony Jones did what he was supposed to do in that moment. Love our defense standing tall still. I said coming into the game, it was absolutely going to be like that. I don't like Adebo getting flagged twice. Clearly, that takes away an interception. Excuse me. He almost had an interception. And then, obviously, the holding by Adebo wiped away another strip sack that we could have had. Um, obviously, we forced some turnovers here on the Carolina Panthers, which is great for us. D-line pressure got up. D-line got pressure with four all night. We got four sacks also, seven sacks on the year. And it took us almost eight full quarters to give up a touchdown as we start the season here with the Saints. And, you know, we really shouldn't have given that touchdown up. We were probably just looking to get the ball back and ultimately waste clock more than anything like we did uh, in the later points of this game to put it away. The Saints have now allowed 20 points or fewer for a franchise record 10th game in a row dating back to last season. So you love the Saints defense again coming around in the last couple of years. Big credit to Dennis Allen here. I will give him credit for that. They're 2-0 for the first time since 2013 in a whole decade. They haven't nearly played their best football. Derek Carr is telling you that. Dennis Allen, for what it's worth, is telling you that. They haven't played their best football by far. They still don't have Alvin Kamara on the lineup. Michael Thomas and Chris Olave and Rashid Shahid are still gelling with Derek Carr. The O-line still has to improve. And they're still one of the nine teams to be undefeated going into week three at 2-0. We'll get into some 2-0 teams later on in the season. But, you know, you take a look at this game for the Carolina Panthers as well, and it's like, damn, Bryce Young needs help. And I will say Adam Thielen was a good signing. I did like Hayden Hurst in his days. I think with the Bengals at one point, we know he's with the Falcons, the Ravens. Now he's with the Panthers. He can be a weapon. G.J. Chark can be a weapon. LaVisca Chenault can be a weapon. Chuba Hubbard is a guy that can play well. You're in year one of year four with Bryce Young. So, of course, you're going to see him get these prospects and get these draft picks in the later years. Hopefully the Carolina does do that for him to give their number one overall pick, to give their Heisman winner what he truly needs to succeed in the NFL. Again, they basically have nine points. The Saints, in an ugly way, control most of this football game. Bryce Young just needs help. I think he was 15 for 23 or 28, I'm not mistaken. Again, under 160 yards in this game. Um, and overall, again, the Saints defense welcomed Bryce Young to the NFL. The Panthers are now a team... That's 0-2 in the NFC South. You have the Falcons at the Saints at the top at 2-0. But again, Saints 2-0 for the first time in a decade. Tenth straight game where they've allowed 20 points or, le or less. Saints are not playing their best football right now, and they are 2-0. On to the second game of Monday Night Football as the Steelers and the Browns kind of played an ugly, enjoyable game in a way. It was a battle of turnovers back and forth. We see Deshaun Watson on the first play of the game throw a pick six that I'm not going to put on him, but some people are going to die on the hill of winning is a quarterback stat. And, oh, whatever you throw, if it's an interception, it's always on the quarterback. Interceptions, yes, are a quarterback stat. But to me, that, that, that fault was not on Deshaun Watson. Some people don't like the route. Some people don't like the way he placed the ball on the route. But at the end of the day, it does start off with a bang as they do have the pick six in terms of the Steelers running it back. You can tell that the Steelers' defense as well misses Cam Hayward. They were gashed up all night with the run from Cleveland and the Steelers really need more from Kenny Pickett as well. He is very, very inconsistent, missing some simple throws, missing the easy layups that when you take a guy as high as you did, when you take a guy in the first round, yes, this is a defensive minded culture, but you drafted Kenny Pickett to bring great things at that offense. And he's clearly not meshing well with Matt Canada. We'll get into some of those ugly stats a little later on in this takeaway, but clearly the Steelers win, I believe, God, I, I don't even have the score here, man. It's like, I get all the basic things, 
but I don't even get the score. I know it was, yes, 26 to 22, but I always want to be sure. Steelers win this football game. Let me check the chat real here. Both games were trash. I fell asleep. Well, your Cowboys fan getting hype off of you guys beating the Jets without Aaron Rodgers and, uh, oh, yeah, beating the, uh, the or not the Buffalo Bills. Um, Lord, the New York Giants. Steve, what's up, man? I think you were the one commenting recently on my YouTube. Panthers are idiots to give up two first rounds and two second rounds and a receiver more to draft Bryce. I'm not going to say they're idiots necessarily. They saw Bryce Young being a Heisman winner. He was really the consensus QB1. Some people might have had Stroud in there, obviously. I wasn't buying the Richardson or the Will Levis hype at the time. I wouldn't say they're idiots, though. You still got to wait a couple years to see if the Bryce Young pick was worth it, of course. But Carolina had to take a swing, right? They they had to do the things that that they needed to do. But the Steelers definitely needed more out of Kenny Pickett. You know, he was very inconsistent. He was all of the preseason hype, which, again, I like preseason, but I'm not going to super buy in on that. The regular season, clearly not getting things done. Again, they're getting gashed up the middle with Cam Hayward. And this Steelers offense is extremely concerning. We understand the Steelers are a very, very loyal franchise. They love Mike Tomlin, never had a losing season. They've got a lot of cornerstone players. Um, They're able to bring in Patrick Peterson, defensive-minded culture. That is the biggest thing. And when they bring in Matt Canada, who was never really highly touted in the first place, whether it was in college football or the NFL, listen to this stat from the Steelers. The Steelers' offense has now gone 37 straight games under OC Matt Canada without gaining at least 400 yards of offense. There have been 269 times since 2021 where an offense has gained at least 400 yards in a game. Zero of those are by the Steelers. And to take it even further, I want to say every other NFL team has done it at least three times in that span. And if they haven't, to know that the Steelers with the Darnell Washington they just brought in, maybe that's not fair to hold against them. But in recent years, of course, when they've you know, we know the picks they brought in in George Pickens, Najee Harris, Pratt Fryermuth. They're really having a lot of faith in Kenny Pickett. Matt Canada is not it. Matt Canada is not the solution in arguably the most loaded division in the AFC North in the easily most loaded conference in football with the expectations that the Steelers have. And you can't even muster up this type of offensive play with a George Pickens who is special, with a Darnell Washington who will be very special, with a Najee Harris who was arguably the best running back coming out of his draft class. Very, very concerning for the Steelers offense here. Matt Canada, more stats on him. The team has not scored over 20 points in 27 of his 37 games as offensive coordinator. They've only scored more than 30 points just twice in those 37 games that they've had him as offensive coordinator. And not only that, I know we're only two weeks through the season, they're the only offense in the league that does not have a first down in the first quarter. So start about talk about starting slow. Talk about not having a great game plan. Talk about not really adjusting in the first parts of your football games. And it was a nice way for Cleveland, or excuse me, for Pittsburgh to get comfortable, of course, again with that pick six. And then you got Cleveland turning right back around, evening it up with that grand delpit uh turnover, the LSU prodigy there. They force a fumble on Deshaun Watson, and then Cleveland turns around again and answers with their own fumble again. This was kind of a a turnover-worthy battle or a turnover battle, really, of back and forth, back and forth. But we see that Kenny Pickett to George Pickens connection, absolutely beautiful. George was literally picking against the Cleveland Browns. Um, And that was his first 100-yard receiving game. He had a ton of targets in this football game. I want to say it was over 10, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So you love to see Kenny Pickett getting comfortable there. We know George Pickens has been this type of receiver, and he's just continuing to show us really what we've known about him since, since he's been coming out of Georgia. 
And you even look, Pittsburgh sacked Deshaun Watson six times, managed nine total quarterback hits, forced three turnovers, scored two defensive touchdowns. J.J. Watt leads the way with two tackles for loss, a sack, a batted pass, four quarterback hits, and his first ever touchdown with the scoop and score. And you're still not putting up offense. The Steelers are only going to be able to force that many turnovers on a on a rusty team where most teams are not going to be rusty within the next three, four, five weeks here in the league. That's not sustainable because aside from a 79-yard touchdown pass to George Pickens, the only offensive touchdown of the game for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Kenny Pickett barely completed 50% of his passes for only 151 yards. The unit's run game had 55 yards, 2.6 yards per carry. They are second to worst in the league through two weeks in yards per play. This is one of the worst offenses in the NFL that we're looking at right now, covered up by one of the best defenses, obviously, in football. You can argue that it's the best, no doubt. Darby, what's good, man? Felix, Felix, <laughs> you trolling, Felix. Don't even play with me, man. You spelled Saints wrong. Your man said Falcons winning the Super Bowl. I would never say that. Falcons and Saints even sounds remotely the same. But Felix, what's good? Darby, what's good? Chris G, Steve, is that Steve Betker? I believe I'm zooming in. God, it's so bad when I zoom in. I hope the stream doesn't doesn't freeze up. Oh no, we might be frozen. No, are we good? Zoom out. Come on. Have you heard anything about the quarterback? I thought was the best quarterback, Stetson Bennett. I hope he gets the help he needs. We're actually talking about Rams. Um, what's it called? We're actually talking about Rams Niners later on in the show. So I'll touch a little bit on, on Stetson Bennett as well. But again, we were talking about it earlier. Something's a little off with Kenny Pickett here. He's got some inconsistent accuracy and consistent play. He shows flashes of being good. I mean, when he gets outside of the pocket at times, he can ball, but how often do we say that a player shows flashes, you know? Um, I mean, in, in sometimes his decision-making isn't too good as well. Like you want to see him make better decisions as the Steelers are going to get more into the season, but the run game was stellar and really, or excuse me, now talking about the Browns here, we got to start looking at Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson has been back for eight games now. Is it eight? Yes. Eight games now and has not looked good. He really does look like he did not touch a football or even kind of participate in football activities for the year that he was off the field due to his allegations. And you go a desperate move from one of the most desperate, if not the most desperate franchise in NFL history, giving a guy who hasn't played in a year with a ton of allegations behind him, the largest contract ever, the most guaranteed money ever. And it's fully guaranteed, not the largest contract, but it was a fully guaranteed deal. All the picks that they gave up. And I hate to see this happening for Deshaun Watson, because I, I still believe he could be top 10. I still believe he could be a top six to seven quarterback in this league, but I don't know if it's going to be under Kevin Stefanski. I don't necessarily know if it's going to be I think it can be with the Browns, but the way it's looking over these last eight games, and I'm not going to freak out, right? But you are eight games in, basically half a season now removed from what's happening. You you feel like you would start to see some, some eeks of Deshaun Watson from, you know, rookie year all the way up to right before the allegations happen. And we're not seeing that. So you really hate to see that from Deshaun Watson. The Browns are going to need more out of him if they want to hang in this division and in this conference. Prayers up for Nick Chubb, man. Big prayers up for Nick Chubb. Same knee he blew out from UGA. Nick Chubb had 10 carries for 64 yards in this game before going out. And I could really argue if Nick Chubb doesn't get hurt. Again, the Steelers are getting gashed up the middle in this game. The Browns really might have won this football game because the run game was stellar. The defense was clearly leading the way. They had their share of turnovers. And talk about Jerome Ford with his best Nick Chubb impression, almost getting that long touchdown run. He really impressed with his ability. Excuse me, the Browns impressed me with their ability to 
really one with run without their best offensive player and arguably their best player, but you know, possibly next to miles Garrett, 16 carries for 106 yards is very impressive in lieu of Nick Chubb. And, and I appreciate the aggressiveness a lot from the two teams here in this one, a lot of two point or not a lot of, but so, you know, some two point tries here that we saw to, to make some scoring differences and really be strategic with the way they were approaching the game. But the Browns had a ton of possessions from deep in their own uh, territory. And ultimately we saw that at times that wasn't very beneficial for them. And again, to know that Pittsburgh forced turnover after turnover only scored off of two of them, six sacks on Deshaun Watson and the offense only managed 12 total points. Steelers had eight drives ending in punts or turnover. And I'm going to give credit to that Browns defense. We saw at the end of the game, Kenny Pickett was 11 for 11 on third and fourth, third or fourth and one on rushing attempts. Browns literally sniffed that out, all 11 to the ball, absolutely stopped him in the backfield. So this is going to be interesting to see how these two teams play out because we've got the Browns not having a lot from Deshaun Watson in the first two weeks, but having everything from their defense. And really the Steelers the same, having nothing from their offense, but having everything from their defense as well. Two teams, again, in a loaded division, in a loaded conference, high expectations from the Steelers fan base. And from me looking in as a Saints fan on the Cleveland Browns, I think they've got the pieces to compete. But Kevin Stefanski is going to have to get some things right. I mean, the Browns lose the Darius Smith in this game. He gets injured, which is very tough to see. You lose Nick Chubb in this game for the season, and they still only lose by four. Yes, turning the ball over a lot is nothing that you want to see at all. But y'all get in the chat, get in the comments as you have been throughout the show. Let me know what you guys think about all of these games so far. Steve said you had a good week with the picks. Good job. Would you like to try the point spread? I might do the point spread there. I'm I'm a little off, I guess, on how the point spread actually works. I don't know if I get it like completely correct and all. Um, but I, I definitely will try it, man. If that's something that you guys want to see and it would make it more engaging. The Browns are the GOAT for single-handedly saving the Saints and Falcons franchises. <laughs> Taking on Deshaun Watson. Hope Nick Chubb heals. Definitely my knee had something like that. I have pain on my knee walking, let alone running. Yeah, absolutely. He blew out his MCL, PCL, and LCL all on the same knee. In 2015 with Georgia, people are all over Adam Schefter for the tweet. Um, and man, I mean, what a game. But we got to get into a little bit of college football as the game of the year. Colorado, Colorado State, Colorado wins 43-35 in a double overtime thriller. And this game had everything. They had the pregame talk to the dirty hits in the game, the penalties all over the place, Shador Sanders engineering the drive. I mean, what a game. Let, let, let's go ahead and get into it as, as things break down here in this Colorado and Colorado State matchup. So you got Jay Norvell's comments, obviously, before the game, talking about how when his mother taught him to speak to grown men with their hat and glasses off, he was just poking a bear, right? Dion goes out, literally puts his glasses brand on sale, racks up a million in the first day. You got Dion showing up on the Pat McAfee show in the middle of Colorado where Pat McAfee show is at and just really harnessing the hype and the energy for this football game as it comes in. And, and you got to respect Prime. You got to respect Prime for being like, hey, my mama didn't teach me to let someone bark at me and not say something back. And he was even supporting Jay Norvell. He had, you know, he said he had some conversations with him when he first got to Colorado. And he said Jay Norvell was very nice to him. Him and Jay Norvell actually were kind of hitting it off. And he said, I'm always going to root for a guy of his stature in the same state as me coaching like I am to be able to do big. But when it came down to business, Dion handled exactly what he had to handle. And we know this is a rivalry game, right? Very chippy, very dirty between these two loaded with penalties and absolute tension. Colorado state had 17 penalties for 182 yards, 
Colorado with 10 penalties for 87. So a big lack of discipline on both of these teams. But I got to take, really, I guess, take a a cheap shot myself at Jay Norvell's coaching and at the actual culture and attitude of Colorado State in this game. Your coach is already talking beforehand. You're bringing your players in. You got Kamara slamming Shador Sanders to the ground with all of his weight, holding his arms in so he can't defend himself. A lot like, realistically, when Drew Brees got absolutely crushed in one of his last few seasons, came back from injury, had the collapsed lung. You got Henry Blackburn taking the cheap shot on Travis Hunter. I mean, what the hell are you doing there? And you can tell he's just kind of walking off the sidelines, not or walking off the field, not really looking back, not really giving a damn about what just happened. A lot of people have been saying it, and I got I, I got to echo it. Jay Norvell, you were either coaching this into them or condoning it. And I'd like to say it was both. 17 penalties for 182 yards. You're basically giving up 10 yards a penalty. And you could easily look back and say, if it if, if you knock off just a few of those, just a few, Colorado State could realistically have got back into this game. But the better, more disciplined, more talented, more well-rounded football team led by primetime Deion Sanders absolutely came out and did what they had to do. All respect to Shador Sanders here. Losing Travis Hunter early on, and he still goes off. Travis Hunter was out for most of the game. And Travis Hunter is clearly one of Shador Sanders' favorite targets. We know he's a two-way player in the Heisman conversation. That cheap shot happens, and you're like, ooh, all right. So now they don't have one of their best players. It didn't matter for Shador. Shador still goes off in the game. 38 for 47, 81% completion, his highest completion percentage since TCU, four touchdowns, one interception that I really didn't care for. kind of thought it was a ticky-tack interception call. Again, 348 yards, a 45-yard pass, which was his longest of the night. You got a 166.9 quarterback rating. Now, yes, his quarterback rating is going down as the season goes on, but hey, it was week one, now it's week two, now it's week three. People have tape. They kind of are understanding what's going to happen with Colorado here. But Shador Sanders, man, Two-yard draw, or excuse me, on the two-yard line, you couldn't have asked for a more perfect punt from Colorado State to get them into that position. Shador Sanders, 98 yards, clutching it up, going for two to send it to overtime. And you have Coach Prime just being an absolute savage here, taking the ball in overtime, and he said it week after week. As long as in the ball, as long as the ball is in Shador's hands, I know we're fine. I know we're gonna win. You usually defer when you're in overtime. See if you need a touchdown, see if you need a field goal, and kind of even understand just what that offense is going to give you first. Shador Sanders had a Heisman-defying moment, leading them down the field, 98 yards, tying the game up, going for two, sending it to overtime. And you really just talk about Colorado being tested, really, for a third straight game. I know they blew out Nebraska 38, or excuse me, 36 to 14, but Colorado's defense was a big catalyst as to why they were able to make things happen. Shiloh Sanders, absolutely on another level. You have him, this is what I love about Shiloh. Shiloh was tapped in. He read CSU for two straight plays. He almost has the interception that was close to the ground, literally the play before the pick six. Next play, he's in the press conference. Knew he, He's like, I'm going to be more aggressive. I'm going to be more aggressive. I'm going to finally jump one and take it to the house. Jumps it, takes it to the house, pick six, first touchdown of the game. Almost has, obviously, another interception when he has the one before that that he drops kind of close to the ground. That was a little tough, you know, for him to rally in there. And then he has the forced fumble. Him being inserted in such key moments was literally the difference here for this Colorado team. 
Of course, you see the offense struggle, though, early on. Shador Sanders, again, with that ticky-tack interception. And then Travis Hunter fumbles. It was returned for a touchdown. They didn't have their first play in plus territory literally until halfway through the third quarter. You throw a pick to turn around and take it away with another pick six. Travis Hunter fumbles to basically lose your interception, excuse me, lose your turnover battle and your defensive points battle. Then you lose Travis Hunter. I mean, the odds were stacked time and time and time again here with Colorado. And they escaped this football game because of better coaching, because of better situational football. Back to the offense struggling a little bit. They threw the ball 47 times in this game. Way more than they ran it. Not a very balanced attack here, but Dion had to come back from 11 down. Shador had to come back from 11 down. You see Marvin, or not Marvin Harrison, you see Michael Harrison, the tight end, plugging in. Doing things in place of Travis Hunter. Having two very big scores. And Colorado has now been tested in three straight games. They continue to divide the odds and adversity with more and more and more coming their way. Coming their way. Colorado was 1-64 in in games which they trailed by 10 or more points, and they won this damn football game. Now, the biggest unfortunate part is they're going to lose Travis Hunter. He's not going to be available, of course, for the um, Oregon game that everybody's going to have their eyes on. They turn right around and play Caleb Williams and USC, which everybody's going to have their eyes on. Those will probably be the two most watched games of the year. You have Shador against Bo Nix, and then you have Shador against Caleb Williams. Those are my three favorite college quarterbacks right now, and they will play over the course of the next two weeks. And unfortunately, Colorado will not have their one of their best players, their two-way player. Colorado was getting gashed on a lot of over-the-middle routes, underneath routes in this game. And even Dion was like, damn, are we, are we finally going to catch on to an underneath route? Like, that's an under route. How many times are you going to let them run it? They do adjust, though. Shiloh Sanders with the great force fumble at a much-needed time. Shiloh Sanders just absolutely doing the things that he needs to do. Shador Sanders, Xavier Weaver, you got Michael Harrison. Colorado is the best story in sports right now, let alone the best story in college football. And I, my eyes will be glued to Colorado and Oregon this coming weekend and absolutely inseparable from the television when they play USC in just a couple of weeks. That dude should be suspended. Let's see. I got some more comments here. Colorado is the most popular sports team in America. Kawhi Leonard went to the game. He doesn't even show up to his own game. So that's what you meant there, Chris. Okay, I got you. That dude should be suspended. Yeah, I'm glad Kamara got thrown out. I also think Henry Blackburn should have some sort of reprimand towards him. Travis Hunter literally has a lacerated kidney. Like, like that's not a simple thing to actually like take hold of. He's going to be out in the biggest games of the year. Not having Travis Hunter against USC and against Oregon could be the difference between Colorado possibly making a dark horse push for the top four and playing for a national championship. I'm just being honest. But yes, they are the best college football story right now. Prime is the hottest story in sports right now. Colorado is the hottest story in sports right now. If he, beat, or if he, beat, or if he beats Oregon, he will be the first pick in the 2024 NFL draft. Did Caleb Williams die? <laughs> Let's be real, bro. Caleb Williams is number one overall. But if Shador for some reason, does beat Oregon and beats USC, hell, I might I might put him as a number one overall pick. We're flying through the show. We're about 31 minutes in. And let's stick it with college football here as Alabama officially has a quarterback problem. And this is weird to see because 
for a while, you had a lot of AJ McCarron type of guys coming through the Crimson Tide, you know, guys that really would just have to game manage, but not necessarily within the game. And then the two Atagabailoas and the Jalen Hurts, well, let me give that respect, the Jalen Hurtses of the world and the two Atagabailoas of the world and the Bryce Youngs of the world and the Mac Joneses of the world. All first-round quarterbacks, I think Jalen Hurts was taken in the second round, but that's just because Philadelphia, at the time, didn't really know what they were doing. Love that Jalen Hurts has the bag now, and he's led Philadelphia to a Super Bowl. But we haven't seen Alabama have a quarterback problem in a really long time, and they've started to become this school now. It's not just wide receivers. It's not just running backs. It's not just defensive players. They were putting very good players at the quarterback position into the league. And that's remarkable, understanding that Alabama hasn't really done that in a while it was like watching a roman gladiator battle stayed up to two to watch it prime is my favorite cowboy oh yeah colorado colorado state was crazy the bama and georgia games look like high school games georgia's coming up right after this jumping into bama but it's very clear it is very very clear that alabama has a quarterback problem right now and just you know a few takeaways from this win over south florida who by the way had one win last year a win is a win it's an absolutely ugly one. They win 17 to three um, inconsistent play from the Crimson Tide offense. They go from Jalen Milrow to Tyler Buckner. Obviously Simpson comes in as well. Um, neither one of them necessarily make an impression. I believe Jalen Milrow should still be that guy because I think he was the most promising. He was the most dynamic. He had the biggest pop. He had the most arm. Don't kid yourself, Nick Saban. Jalen Milrow's your guy, but I understand why you did pull him out. Not necessarily the greatest start for the first couple of games, of course, we you know, talk about redshirt freshman Ty Simpson. That's funny. I went to school with a guy named Time System, Ty Simpson. He would eventually enter the game late in the second quarter, and he would remain Alabama's quarterback throughout the contest. But neither one of these guys were very impressive as the game went on. We're just three games into the Tommy Reese era of the Alabama offense, and it's it's off to a pretty rough start if we're being honest. I, honest. Obviously, they're struggling at the quarterback position. No adjustments have really been made. And the crazy thing is all of the tied quarterbacks – not all of the tied quarterbacks – Jalen Milrow is very athletic, right? I don't believe he has been necessarily set up for success with the play calling or the schemes or the way things have rolled out because we see he can connect on big plays. Yes, he's obviously missing on some simple things there, um, but Jalen Milrow is the guy. The Alabama offense looked the best under him. Alabama actually not, they didn't look scary, but they were resemblant of a Nick Saban-led team when Jalen Milrow was in at quarterback. Penalties are costing the Tide. Penalties are absolutely costing them. You look in the last two weeks, Alabama's had four touchdowns taken off the board because of penalties. Lack of discipline, very big problem. They have to fix that quickly. And I think that's just a thing that Nick Saban has to reel in. We know Nick Saban's teams are very disciplined. They do not do these types of things. They do not have touchdowns taken off the board in a piss-poor game against the South Florida game, against South Florida, because of the way that things are shaking out. And, you know, you got to give Kevin Steele his credit for that Alabama defense doing their part in Saturday's matchup. They hold South Florida 264 total yards, three total points. They forced two turnovers, five sacks. They were challenged pretty decently following last week's showing, and they definitely answered the bell here. Again, winning 17-3. to You got to look at Roydell Williams as well. He should definitely be RB1. 17 carries, 129 yards, and a touchdown. He's really proven himself that he can step in and be that RB1. But the quarterback competition, if you want to talk about anybody that should technically challenge Jalen Milrow, maybe it's between Ty Simpson and Jalen Milrow. I mean, if we're being honest. Because 
Ty Simpson didn't look like a game changer, but he did manage the offense well. He distributed the ball, you know, somewhat effectively in this. Uh, Buckner really played his way out of the competition. When you take a look at just the film realistically, it's got to come down again to Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson. Not a whole lot to take away from an Alabama-South Florida game where Alabama only puts up 17 points and they shuffle quarterbacks and they have penalties. Like, this is not complimentary Crimson Tide, Roll Tide Rolled, Nick Saban football. This is not the Alabama Crimson Tide now sitting outside of the AP Top 10 for the first time in what feels like a century. You have Alabama playing football like this. You've got Florida beating Tennessee. We're about to get into Georgia, South Carolina. We're going to get into, obviously, FSU and Boston College later on in the show as well. But college football week three was, it was interesting. Colorado, Colorado State, Florida, South, um, excuse me, Alabama, South Florida. Florida beating Tennessee, UGA, South Carolina. What do we got to look at here? Alabama's got a quarterback problem. They have a quarterback problem, and this isn't chart. This feels probably like uncharted territory to them. Uncharted territory to them. I think they'll be able to iron it out. I think they'll be okay realistically in the coming weeks. And you know, as the seasons go on with Nick Saban, they're like Alabama's had a top recruiting class of all time, especially over the last five years, for a very specific reason. They are SEC champs and multiple-time national champs under Nick Saban for a reason. So I'm not panicking like we're about to potentially in the next couple segments as we talk about NFL panic teams, but Alabama definitely has to clean it up as um, things are not looking very promising. You wish Notre Dame hired Dion. Yeah, Notre Dame probably wishes they hired Dion as well. Speaking of panicking, let's get into the panic meter. Short little segment here, then we'll get into a break, come back out, talk some more college football, NFL power rankings, and then we're out of the show for the night, but we still got a quid. Good bit of content to get to. The panic meter for 0-2 NFL teams. Which team should panic? Which team should kind of be okay at the moment? I, I realistically think all the teams on here. We've got nine overall 0-2 teams. Five of them, in my opinion, really don't matter. The four that are up here are kind of some that shuffle around with high expectations or are up there in power rankings. The Minnesota Vikings are 0-2. They're also 0-2 in one-score games this year versus being 11-0 in the prior year in one-score games. The Minnesota Vikings have one of the best wide receiver duos in football right now with one of the most stable quarterbacks in football in Kirk Cousins. Kevin O'Connell engineering the 13-win season last year. Feels like he cleans up some of the mistakes, but now you have the Vikings losing to the Bucs who are playing very impressive football. One of my biggest surprises of the NFL season thus far. Happy for what Baker Mayfield's kind of been able to do. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin are still active. That defense is still intact. And that's why I said, I think if the Bucs have a different, and we can say this probably about, I don't know, 75, 80% of the NFL that doesn't have an elite superstar quarterback. If the Bucs have, I don't know, I guess a Kirk Cousins level quarterback. I mean, and but then you have to ask yourself, like if the Bucs had him, would they be able to contend? But it's almost kind of like outside of the defense, which is a big X factor, kind of show me the difference there between the Bucs and the Vikings, if we're being honest. Both quarterbacks that can manage the game, yeah, I'm going to take Kirk over Baker, but Jettas and Addison can, you know, kind of compare to Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Of course, Jettas and Addison are better, but decent QBs, again, Kirk over Baker, weapons at wide receiver. Of course, the Vikings have TJ Hawkinson, they get rid of Dalvin Cook. But then it's almost like, yes, Kevin O'Connell over... Todd Bowles, but the Bucs can turn around and claim their defense. But again, if I'm the Vikings, again, they fell to 0-2, not only losing to the Bucs, but losing in a shootout to the Super Bowl runner-ups, the best team in the NFC um, last year, and maybe the best team in the NFC now next to the Niners as well, in 
the Philadelphia Eagles. If I'm a Vikings fan, I'm worried. I didn't expect, or maybe when I didn't, excuse me, my record predictions, I did expect the Vikings to actually not, you know, win a ton of games this year. I want to say I only had eight or nine games for the Vikings in total this year. Not making the playoffs, if I'm not mistaken. So the Vikings fans, considering what they have with their roster, considering coming out of last season, they, they, sh- they should be panicking. They should absolutely be worried. The Chargers, I'm going to go out on a limb and defend the Chargers a little bit here. Everyone's talking about Brandon Staley, and even I am as well. You got the most money on defense. You got the most expensive roster. You got a Bosa. You know, you got a Khalil Mack and a J.C. Jackson and a Derwin James. Like, you've got all that, right? And you're owing to with Justin Herbert and Keenan Allen and Mike Williams and Quentin Johnston and, and Austin Eckler and Abosa again on the line. Like, it's not something you expected the Chargers to really be going through at this point in the year. The reason I want to defend the Chargers is they went toe-to-toe in a shootout with arguably the best offense in the NFL right now in the Miami Dolphins. And a decent defensive culture and defensive roster overall in the Tennessee Titans. The Titans just went toe-to-toe with my Saints in week one. Now, yes, our offense was not clicking on all cylinders, but to do that to New Orleans at home in the week one opener, only losing by one, I've got some respect for the Titans. I do. So I'm not going to drag the Chargers for being 0-2. Should they still panic? Yes. But I'm not as worried as most people would think because the Chargers are still very talented. Now, Brandon Staley is consistently holding them, even as a defensive mind and coach at the head coaching position, they're still a bottom three team in the league in points per game given up and yards per game given up defensively. So you got to start looking at Brandon Staley and wondering like, what's going on, dude? We're in the AFC West. We, we play Mahomes twice a year. If Denver turns into anything, we're going to be playing Sean Payton and Russell Wilson twice a year. So you got you to gotta make adjustments. And that's what the Chargers aren't doing. They kind of have a better game against the Tennessee Titans, of course. Lose a shootout with arguably the best offense in the NFL. So, like, again, I'm not freaking out because I know that they're capable of better, but will they do better? A team that I'm absolutely freaking out about, just put it in my last uh, YouTube short, Instagram reel, TikTok, however you guys view me out there. Appreciate y'all's support on social. I'm very disappointed in the Denver Broncos. And if I'm a Broncos fan, I'm panicking. Shout out Pick a Side Podcast. Drew is literally saying, tank. I don't want to win a game. Go get Caleb. Make a move for Shador, Bo Nix, something. People are throwing in the towel on Russell Wilson. I mean, they are they're just throwing it out. Straight up throwing it out. And can you blame them? You lose in a shootout to the Washington Commanders at home after you're up 21-3 to and then get outscored 32-3. to It's embarrassing. 32-3 to over the stretch of the game. I, I think those numbers are correct. Lord, I don't know. But you blow an 18-point lead at home. You lose in the Raiders divisional game at home. Two home games to start. Sean Payton is 0-2. Russell Wilson 0-2. Russell Wilson looked good in the first half, really, of kind of both games, tailing off in the second half of both games. Sean Payton's got to adjust. Sean Payton's clearly rusty. He took a year off from the league. But the Broncos were expected to be better than this. I expected the Broncos to be better than this. That's why I had them so high up in my power rankings because I believe Russ and Peyton were going to pull things out of each other we've never seen before. Looks like they're not going to show us as of now the things that I thought they were capable of. Pass rush against the commanders was obviously decent. Then it kind of fell off in the second half. 
I guess I can have some grace. The Commanders are scoring 28 points per game. They're one of the best offenses in the NFL right now, given they played the Arizona Cardinals and the Denver Broncos. But Eric Bieniemy is absolutely showing you his value. There's no question about what Eric Bieniemy is bringing to the table and really making Sam Howell look like he can go toe-to-toe with Russell Wilson at times. I'm worried if I'm a Broncos fan. And of course, we're worried about the Bengals. Bengals are 0-2. They usually start 0-2. Joe Burrow aggravates the calf injury. I'm panicking here for the Bengals. Joe Burrow not looking good. Jamar Chase not necessarily looking the best. Like, this team still has to click. No preseason. Big contract. Calf injury. More than likely going to go 0-2. I mean, if you if you just throw an NFL team out there and say, hey, you're going to start the year with your best player and your franchise quarterback with an injured calf, he's not going to play any snaps in week one, and your offense isn't going to gel for the first two weeks. Yeah, probably NF, every NFL team is going to tell you that they're going 0-2, whether you're a casual or you love the game like I do and you have your own show. I'm very worried about the Bengals here because we simply know that they're better than this. Now, yes, they've started 0-2 and got to the AFC title game, but 11.5% of NFL teams that start 0-2 don't make the playoffs. The five teams that I wasn't necessarily going to put on here, but I guess I can still give them the respect because they are an 0-2 NFL team. The Patriots don't know if they're really panicking. Like We didn't expect much from this team. The Texans, of course, they didn't expect much from that team. I'm going to talk about Justin Fields on Friday show in episode 42 because there's a lot of talk about him. If I'm a Bears fan, I'm panicking because of how much you wanted to turn things around in this season, how much money you actually spent, how Justin Fields was supposed to take the leap. Justin Fields is 5-22 and 22 as a starter. Justin Fields has been sacked 101 times as a starter. Justin Fields has 31 fumbles and has lost eight of them as a starter. But again, we'll get more into that on Friday show, episode 42. And we have the Carolina Panthers 0-2 as well. Again, not major expectations. They could be in the grabs to get possibly Marvin Harrison next year, which would be insane for Bryce Young. But we'll have to wait and see. So the panic meter for 0-2 teams, Vikings panicking, Chargers halfway, Broncos and Bengals definitely panicking, Patriots, Texans, Bears, Cardinals, Panthers, not very many teams, of course, that we know are really pushing to do anything this year. I don't know if I mentioned the Cardinals early on, but now I am. That has been the first half of the NFL with AJL episode 41. We got six people live with us right now. I appreciate every single one of you, two on the personal Facebook, two on YouTube, one on the NFL with AJL Facebook, and one on the NFL with AJL Twitter. The Patriots should be scared. They got my Cowboys in two weeks. Yeah, your Cowboys are probably going to roll. The Chargers have Kellen Moore. I know. Kellen Moore from you guys. And, And that's not even my thing. We know the Chargers offense is very damn capable. But what is happening on the defensive side of the ball? You got to have defense in the AFC. You have to have defense in the American Football Conference to get far in this day and age of the NFL. Joe Burrow is overrated. Ah, He started 0-2 before. I don't know if we can say a guy that in two healthy seasons has been to -to back-to-back AFC title games and is arguably one play away from winning the Super Bowl. But... That'll be more to be desired. This is episode 41 of the NFL with AJL. I am indeed AJL, Adam Joseph Lewis, hosting the show here for you. Please make sure to like the stream wherever you're at on podcast, or excuse me, like the stream wherever you're at. Please subscribe on YouTube. Share the stream with a fellow at Phil a fellow with a fellow NFL fan, with someone that just enjoys podcasts or talk shows in general. Please drop a comment on all social platforms. Get in the chat, the QR code. Scan that for every bit of the NFL with AJL social media content and podcast content. We post our episodes every Wednesday and Saturday. That next morning slash afternoon, directly after going live on Tuesday, 
and Friday evenings as well. I'm on pace for my best month on YouTube. We will absolutely be making money from the show this year, and I'll be able to offer you guys even more from the podcast. As always, we're sponsored by Buy and Sell with AJL for all your worldwide professional real estate needs, whether you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, or invest in real estate. Buy and Sell with AJL has got you absolutely covered. Drop your email down below in the comments or DM them on social media with your email to get on their exclusive real estate social media newsletter. And also, if you want to get included with their AI system they just put in to really help buyers and sellers with specific properties, they can absolutely plug you in there. DM them on social or again, get at them um, in the comments here on the show or in the chat on the show as well at the, uh, excuse me, at buy and sell with AJL for all your worldwide professional real estate needs. I want to read off a couple more comments here. Steve, stay with me, man. This is the most uh, activity I've had in a while before I get to the break. I think the Bengals will be in the playoffs, but it's going to be tough. Very true. I think the Rams will beat them this week. That's very possible. I, I got a lot of respect for the Rams and they're going to be, they're definitely going to be talked about in a, in a later game here. Joe Burrow's trash. I hate, you're just hating, bro. Really good show, brother. I appreciate that. Look at the difference when Kellen is gone. I mean, y'all's offense looks good, man. Going to go ahead and hit a quick two-minute break here so I can breathe, get some water, and then we're in for the back half of episode 41 on the NFL with AJ. Y'all stay tapped. Don't go anywhere. back into the NFL with AJL episode 41. Y'all make sure to like that stream, subscribe on YouTube, share the stream wherever you're at, stay in the chat, stay in the comments. Looks like I lost a couple viewers while we were in the break, but hey, when I get a chance to breathe and I get a chance to reset, I'm absolutely going to dominate the second half of the show. Just got sent something here by my cousin 
And it's pretty disturbing. The last three Monday Night Football games, DeMar Hamlin suffers a cardiac arrest, Aaron Rodgers ruptured his Achilles, and Nick Chubb possibly has a career-ending knee injury. We got Jalen Hurts and Joe Burrow up next (laughs) on Monday Night Football. Uh, So that's going to be interesting to see, no doubt. Georgia and South Carolina played a close one until it wasn't. And, of course, I want to get into that. Obviously, Georgia being the number one team in the nation. Georgia being the back-to-back national champions looking to go for the three-peat. And they play an ugly one. They pull it out 24-14. They're now 3-0 on the year. Still the number one team in the nation, thankfully, as a Dogs fan and as everyone watching you. You want to see the Dogs continue to do well, right? But the Dogs stumble early on. Then they really dominate that second half behind some work from Carson Beck. And uh, they held off South Carolina. South Carolina was going for a big upset bid here. Storm back in the second half from an 11-point deficit. Obviously, talking about the dogs here, we take control of the game for the rest of the way. And and it really wasn't pretty for the dogs in their SEC opener, right? But every single win counts in the standings, no matter how you come across them. And we know that's what matters in college football. One loss, you're sweating. Two losses, you're probably assuming you're not even in the playoffs, right? But it was not an easy win. The dogs were favored by four touchdowns before this game, and and they did not look like the number one team in the nation throughout this game. South Carolina opens up, punches them in the mouth, 10-play, 65-yard touchdown drive. That really kind of proved costly because it was a score in this game that the dogs had to worry about and ultimately overcome. He had Antoine Wells, who caught a 17-yard touchdown pass from Spencer Rattler that ended the drive. Unfortunately, Antoine Wells' day came to an end as well. He suffered a foot injury that knocked him out of the game. And and you could really say with Spencer Rattler connecting with him, if they would have still had him in the game, the dogs could be asking themselves of, hey, would have this been possibly closer than 24 to 14? But, you know, Georgia didn't have much trouble moving the ball in the first half. But the issue was stalling out in the red zone. Georgia had a. before halftime now clearly Georgia came out in the second half they adjusted they literally in the second half 21 to nothing run and the defense came and did what they did the offense stood up scored the 21 unanswered points in the second half obviously Kirby Smart wants to see them play better but the dogs score on the first two possessions of the second half while the defense absolutely smothered South Carolina in the second half obviously opening it up uh, Georgia took that 24 to 14 lead midway through the fourth, uh, third quarter and clearly just never turned around and looked back. Now, South Carolina did have that chance to really make it a game again, but the Gamecocks offense only ran two plays in Georgia territory during the second half. Again, a testament to that best defense, arguably, or without a question, it's a fact in college football. And they even failed to get past Georgia, to get past Georgia's 44 yard line. They literally got six plays into plus territory. And it just couldn't make it happen anymore. Carson Beck throws for 269 while the dogs, um, they have Dejan Edwards led the way on the ground again, 118 yards and a score. So the dogs are definitely getting some production out of Dejan Edwards. You really love to see what he's doing for the team so far. Now, you know, the the reason that, and, and we kind of saw just a little bit, these red zone issues with Georgia against UT Martin against Ball State. And when you win those two combined games with a score of 93 to 10, like you're not really that concerned, right? It's the number one team in the nation first two weeks of the year, like again, 93 to 10 for a total margin of victory. But after those games, the dogs were 81st in the nation in red zone touchdown efficiency at 60%, which 60% is still solid. Six out of every 10 times you're going to the red zone. Now, maybe you wanted about seven or eight times. Of course, you wanted to be 100%. The red zone, that's the money downs. What are you doing inside the 20? What are you doing on third and fourth down, especially on fourth down if you're going for it? 
But then you look today, Georgia, or not today, but in the game, Georgia struggles in the red zone. They reached the red zone six times on nine possessions, not even counting the end of half possessions that they had that were really cut short. They only get 24 points in six trips, finished with three touchdowns, a field goal, and two missed kicks. So Georgia really could have won this game comfortably with a point swing of about another 12 points here. Six points for a touchdown and the two field goals go in. That's a 12-point swing there. So we're possibly talking about a 36-14 to 14 win, kind of like we saw Colorado over Nebraska. But when you look at Georgia is different this year. Like college football is different this year. Like we got Florida State, who we're talking about next here on the show against Boston College, Jordan Travis. Like we've got a lot of teams in college football this year that are going to come to play. They've got talent. They've got quarterbacks that are better than ours. They've got arguably offensive players that are better than ours that could go higher in the draft. When you cannot take advantage of finishing drives and letting a team like South Carolina hang around, you don't want to see that happen. And at times, the defense was too much for the Gamecocks to overcome. But what happens if someone like Florida State or Ole Miss or Tennessee does finish those drives? Excuse me, not Florida State. Auburn, Ole Miss, Tennessee, finishing drives later in the season. Now, of course, of course Tennessee you know, loses to Florida. And then if the dogs are struggling to still do that, that's not going to be a recipe for success. That's not a recipe to get the three-peat going. And we understand that Lad McConkey hasn't played in three games. Javon Puller dressed out, but he didn't play. Um, they're still relying on walk-ons like Cash Jones, who has been playing well. Um, you know, Kendall Milton sat most of the second half with a knee injury. He had seven carries for 25 yards. Oh, yeah, and then before halftime, you have the starting tackle, tackle, excuse me, limping to the locker room before showing up on crutches during the second half. So Georgia definitely lost key players in this game. It's not like they were at full-fledged force, especially not having Lad McConkey who is a very key piece of this offense. We saw what he did as he came onto the scene last year. But they do have a good bit of depth on the roster. And that is a testament to their recruiting. When you look at their recruiting and what they realistically did, there's a reason that Kirby Smart is very highly touted. There's a reason that Georgia is in the running for three championships in a row. And there's a thing, Georgia's probably going to be fine anyways, right? We see them do this last year to Mizzou before we beat them. We've seen Georgia struggle to South Carolina literally three years ago, four years ago. Jake Fromm is the quarterback. I think in his second or third year, we're literally missing kicks against South Carolina. We didn't win the national championship this year, if I'm not mistaken. But we've seen Georgia just fall flat, miss kicks, let a shitty team like South Carolina hang around. They're due for one of these every season or every other season. You know, the, the annual trap game, apparently, that Deion Sanders doesn't believe in. But you want to see Georgia play better. You know they're capable of playing better. They're the number one team in the country for a reason. And then I got to give a little bit of credit to Spencer Rattler, right? Like he's doing what he can out here, you know, connecting with Wells 14 to three at halftime. Spencer Rattler making a little bit of plays. Like, can the Georgia defense really hold things up? And, you know, ultimately just what's it called? Can the Georgia defense really hold things up? Which, of course, they end up doing. And obviously, you know, win this football game. But you look at South Carolina's offensive line just before we get into uh, FSU and Boston College. They lost their starting tackles before the season, came into Saturday allowing 11 and a half tackles for loss per game. You're getting three tackles for loss, and some of those, that could be a sack per quarter. Per quarter. Three tackles for loss. They're averaging 11 and a half tackles for loss per game. That's the worst mark in the nation, and it's not going to improve much after Georgia finished with seven tackles for loss and three sacks on the day. <laughs> I don't know if sacks count for tackle for loss. I'm sure they do. Like TFL is kind of a broad category and then sacks go inside that. Um, Riddler, you know, excuse me, Riddler, LOL. Speaking of Desmond Ritter, Spencer Rattler, Riddler. 
Rattler dropped back the pass 42 times and took shots on at least half of them. Time after time, he stood in the pocket as a future NFL player in a Georgia uniform, literally got there for the pressure, for the sack, for the quarterback knockdown. And it was just ultimately too much for Spencer Rattler to overcome. But you guys get in the chat, get in the comments, let me know what you think of Georgia playing a close one to South Carolina. Is it really a trap game? What was Georgia actually able to do here? 584 subs. Shout out to the the lady, the future wifey, letting us know what the sub count is. Let's get to 600 subs on the show. We've got the goal of 600 subs on the NFL with AJL. Steve says, don't think Georgia's going to win the championship without Bennett. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Stetson Bennett since I know you brought this up earlier. Stetson Bennett absolutely stepped up in the national championship and in the SEC title game in which Georgia did beat Alabama, I want to say in the second year, yes, two gets in the national championship. Stetson Bennett looked great in preseason week one. He is battling a shoulder injury right now with the Rams. But Stetson Bennett, in the last two weeks of preseason, looked horrible. Sean or Sean Payton. Sean McVay rips the Band-Aid off. Obviously, Stetson Bennett's, you know, really looking the best out of the rookie quarterbacks early on. Like, he was up there with Anthony Richardson on, damn, this guy can actually play again preseason. Week two, horrible. Week three, I don't even think he plays, if I'm not mistaken. So it is very possible to say that they could lose it without Stetson Bennett. But, I mean, I don't know if we can sit here and say, considering everything Georgia lost, if Stetson Bennett was really enough of a, you know, um, if Stetson Bennett was really enough of a factor to say that they can't win the championship without him. And now let's get into FSU and Boston College before we get into some more NFL action. We're going to talk about 2-0 NFL teams. We got a packed show. Man, I told you the shows get longer as the season goes on. I might love this too much. Nah, just kidding. There is absolutely no such thing. So Florida State beats Boston College in a nail-biter, 31-29. to And there's a lot of takeaways from this game. Florida State battling a one-in-one Boston College unranked team. Florida State obviously being the fourth team in the country. They stay undefeated going 3-0. Jordan Travis has a decent game. 15 of 24, 222 yards, two touchdowns. Had the long pass of 44 yards, four carries, 38 yards. And I've said, you know, Jordan Travis is one of my favorite quarterbacks. I really like Jordan Travis a lot as he goes through this college football year. But they played a nail-biter against Boston College, right? And when you look at what is actually happening with Florida State in this game. So we'll dig into it here. Again, Jordan Travis with a decent game. But, you know, winning ugly is a thing that we saw a lot here over the weekend with football and really in college football. They benefited, though, Florida State from Boston College's penalties, and obviously they survived two costly turnovers. You got Clemson up next, so it's good enough for now. but. Again, Jordan Travis throwing a pair of touchdown passes, one to Bell, one to Daniel. They take him down 31 to 29. It was really just a lack of execution, Coach Mike Norvell said, of course. Something we'll learn from as a football team. We're going to continue to push. We're going to continue to improve. And I've got a lot of confidence. And Boston College came close. They hadn't beaten a top-five team since 2002, but they definitely put on quite a show. Sticking with Florida State a little bit here, though. So Florida State, thankfully, 1-0 in the ACC They had just three first-half possessions, scoring a field goal and two touchdowns, which was, you know, efficient enough. They were 
They drove 61 yards down the field and then 75 yards down the field and then another 70 yards down the field to take a 17-10 lead at the half. So even though they only touched the ball three times in the first half, they were engineering plays. They were they were chewing up offensive yards. And, and again, this is a testament to what Florida State has done to get to that fourth overall team in the country. You know, um, I mean, you got Jordan Travis finishing drives with a 19-yard touchdown pass again and then Trey Benson running two yards in for a touchdown talking about there in the first half. You got third and fourth down conversions that they were able to convert on, thankfully, but there weren't that many opportunities. They did settle for a field goal on that first drive, and then they did generate 17 points on other three drives. They scored on five of its six first drives, not counting a kneel down to end the half. So overall, I mean, even though they did win ugly, yes, they had their offense perform in good spots, but they just didn't execute enough well you know, well on to actually make things uh, more favorable and 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 ultimately for a better takeaway of people looking at the game and especially Florida State fans as well. But DJ Lundy intercepts Castellanos while he essentially is laying down. You got a super athletic pick and interception on the day, especially when that defense needed stops. Um, and, you know, you got Lundy's first college interception as well. Then you got the Seminoles driving down to the goal line. Lundy gets the call there. He runs up the middle. He's initially stopped, but he got the second ever second effort. Excuse me. They push him right into the end zone. Pretty funny. He's now got a stat line of four rushes, three yards and three touchdowns in his college career. But the defense struggled on third and fourth down with Boston College. You know, the defense had been very, very good in third and fourth down coming into this game. <clears throat> coming into the game. They allowed LSU and Southern Miss to convert on just 6 of 23, which is 27% on third down tries. FSU had made stops on all four attempts by the Tigers and the Golden Eagles, of course, leading into the game, speaking of LSU and Southern Miss. But what did Boston College do? They just easily converted on 8 of 19 third down conversions, 4 or 5 fourth down conversions, making FSU's defense absolutely work for it, keeping them on the field, and really making them pay in certain situations. You got time and time again, though. Castellanos dropped back and had time to throw, found a rushing lane to pick up a first down. And on the day, he was 20 of 33 for 305 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Guys out of Waycross, Georgia, also ran for 16 uh, 16 carries on 95 yards and a touchdown. And it really felt like that on every significant drive, Castellanos threw or ran for a first down. Or he had Kyle Robichaud, uh, Robichaud it might be, 21 carries, 64 yards, and a touchdown. He runs for a first down. Um, Robichaud converted six times on third or fourth down. So he was very key. There were just these key pieces between quarterback, between running back play that ultimately Boston college was kind of able to jump in on, but Boston college had numerous pre-snap penalties. Definitely a discussion about a potential Eagles upset, um, that really they could have had obviously on a, um, excuse me on FSU. But when you go look at, you know, Boston college in this game, 19 penalties, new school record. They kept the game competitive, but they they really couldn't get out of their own way, right? Anytime you have 19 penalties, you're absolutely going to fall flat on your face, whether it's a false start, you know, killing momentum. They were trying to keep the pace with them, but when you have penalties become drive killers, become point taker awayers, yes, that's a word here on the NFL with AJL, you're not going to win a lot of football games like that. Absolutely not. But you look at the offense at times, again, when it stepped in with the running back, with the quarterback play, it revolved around Castellanos really being able to spread the ball around, working well with his legs, um, you know, running the ball. He was able to rip off a couple of long runs and really scramble to find some of those open receivers. But FSU wasn't really sure about committing to them, or excuse me, committing to Castellanos because he was not, you know, he was making them respect. 
them in the run game, but also in the pass game, really being that dual threat quarterback. You know, they controlled time of possession. They really limited FSU's opportunities on offense. And as a result, that was almost a reason of why they were able to upset. But clearly the defense got overmatched. Jordan Travis and Florida State were one of the most intimidating offenses in the country. They were a number four offense, a number four team, excuse me, in the country for a reason. So you're asking Boston College to do a lot, unranked. Now, yes, you're at home, but bringing in Jordan Travis, who is one of the top quarterbacks in this game, you know, in college football, um, like it, it was a lot for them. You know, they, they struggled to stop uh, the Seminoles, especially in pass coverage. They did make a couple of key stops near the end of the game, but the game ending face mask penalty, again, a penalty was a backbreaker and kind of kind of sealed it shut. And again, uh, excuse me, not Kyle, Kai Robichaud, Robichaud, however you want to say it, uh, par- primary running back. He looked really good out there. Like I said, he had some key plays as well, but Castellanos really has to get better on play action, right? You don't know if, you know, one of the few people out there noticing this, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's someone else looking in on the game, but his handoffs on play action are not super clean. It's either him or the running backs are like rarely in position to actually get the play action pulled off, but it's not really faking anybody out. And we know when you implement the play action, when you're able to run kind of well, like they were in this game and make Florida State respect them, also not on the run game, but on the pass game, when you're able to implement play action, that allows you for your deep shots over the top. If we would have seen more of that with Boston College, they possibly could have had the upset in this game. But Florida State, again, beats Boston College 31-29. to A lot of nail biters here in college football, Georgia and South Carolina. Alabama and South Florida, Colorado and Colorado State, covering all these games here. I said I was only going to talk about the NFL, but I lied. I absolutely lied because college football pulled me in from week one with Colorado and TCU, and we've been in for the ride ever since. All right, so now we've got the Ravens and the Bengals. The Ravens and the Bengals play a decent game, I feel like. You know, the Ravens really had no sense in winning this football game. The Cincinnati Bengals had no sense in losing this football game, considering how injury-riddled the Ravens were coming into this game. No J.K. Dobbins, no Marlon Humphrey, no Marcus Williams, uh, uh, no Tyler Linderbaum, and no Ronnie Staley. That is five key players. Obviously, we know that they lose J.K. Dobbins to the Achilles injury. But, I mean, the Ravens, they never trailed. In this game, they controlled the pace of play really for most of this game. You got a big day from Lamar, two touchdowns, no picks, 24-33 with 237 yards. Also doing his thing on the ground, 12 carries for 54 yards. His biggest plays, you got the 52-yard bomb to Zay Flowers and then another 17-yard touchdown pass to Nelson Aguilar. Hoping OBJ can come back healthy very soon. Like, this is a receiver room that's kind of been rehauled, kind of been overdone. We had the years of the... Devin Duvernay's and the Rashad Batemans, but no, let's really bring in a Zay Flowers from Boston College. Let's bring in a nine-year vet in Nelson Aguilar who did play under that Super Bowl winning Eagles team. Let's bring in an OBJ who could have possibly been that Super Bowl MVP and was unguardable in the year that the Rams won the Super Bowl, and we know what OBJ is capable of. It is kind of depending on a not skeleton crew, but not a super proven crew as of right now in the year meshing together, being with Lamar Jackson, Todd Monken, and this new offensive coordination, and it was impressive. 52-yard bomb to Zay, love Zay, got him in fantasy. Uh, I I thought he was one of the better receivers in the draft, really. I might have had him number three behind JSN. I just love the way he played the game. And then that 17-yard touchdown pass to Nelson Aguilar as well. And again, for a unit missing a three-time Pro Bowl corner in Marlon Humphrey, a ball-hawking safety in Marcus Williams, up against arguably the best wide receiver truo 
excuse me, wide receiver trio. You got Joe Burrow under center. The Ravens shorthanded secondary did an absolute hell of a job against the Bengals offense. They helped hold Joe Burrow to just 222 yards passing on 41 attempts. Jamar Chase had five catches under 40 receiving yards for the second week in a row and clutch play by Rocky Seen over in the corner of the end zone to force it free from Jamar Chase, slam him to the ground, not having that touchdown pass on their watch. And you got to look at the Ravens getting really clutch plays in this game from several different defensive backs to prevent touchdowns, drive extending conversions from the Cincinnati Bengals in his ninth career start and first of the season in place of an injured Marcus Williams, one of the best safeties in the league. You got the fourth year pro Geno Stone had the best game of his very young NFL career, led the team with nine total tackles, a pass breakup, his second career pick. Brandon Stevens stepped up as the Ravens number one corner in this game, had another very strong game as an open field tackler as well. He even prevents T Higgins, T Higgins, excuse me, from getting his feet inbounds, his feet inbounds on a touchdown pass. He even got our Darius Washington. He got picked on at times in the nickel position, of course, and obviously is his spots on where he played corner in the field. But overall, he finished with five total tackles, a pass breakup, and a quarterback hit on a blitz. Y'all give me a second. Got the dog clawing at the door. Yeah, like always, you want to be indecisive and just have it your way. Well, it's mine and mommy's fault because we always let you have it your way. Yep, now you're going to lay down right there. Yep, right behind the monitor. Sports Dudes Hind Show. What's good, man? Good to see you in. Thank you for tapping into the uh, Thank you for tapping into the show. Sorry that I had to get up there real quick, y'all. But again, Brandon Stevens, Geno Stone, uh, Ardarius Washington, when you are missing a Marlon Humphrey, who's one of the best corners, when you're missing a Marcus Williams, who is one of the best safeties in the league, when they picked him up from New Orleans, they gave him that contract for a reason. And you're able to absolutely have your depth and your players in key moments definitely step in. You got, again, that clutch, clutch pass breakup by Rocky Seen in this game. Literally ripped it out of Jamar Chase's hands. It looked like it was going to be a touchdown catch, and then he slams him to the ground. Even with an injured J.K. Dobbins, who was supposed to be the powerhouse of this running back room, of course, people were talking about not even picking or starting Gus Edwards and Justice Hill this week in fantasy for the Ravens because of them going up against the Bengals, losing J.K. Dobbins. Were they really going to be able to adjust? Well, they did. Season high, 178 rushing yards, joint effort from Gus Edwards and Justice Hill, and even some contributions from a pair of wide receivers in the run game as well. Justice Hill got the start, got 41 yards on 11 carries, and even Devin DuVernay had 15 yards on three jet sweeps, so clearly trying to incorporate him into a new part of that offense as well. Gus Edwards had those several key first downs in the game. Then he had that five-yard rush to ice the game at the end, move the chains first down, seal it away from the Cincinnati Bengals, finish the team's leading rusher on 62 yards, 10 carries, and the first points of the game there, speaking of Gus Edwards. But the Ravens' O-line was so clean. To not have Tyler Linderbaum, to not have Ronnie Staley in a very run-centric, run-heavy, good at running the football, maybe not run-centric, but good at running the football team in the Baltimore Ravens, you didn't expect them to be able to protect Lamar well, which they did against a failing Bengals team. You didn't expect them to be able to run the football well, which they did against a Bengals defensive line that after bringing in a Trey Hendrickson and some of the moves that they had on that line, 
they were a pretty decent defensive line. Like we saw the Bengals be that good defensive unit over the last couple of seasons, or at least try to be, have the players in the right positions, the talent, the defensive line, obviously some of the secondary as well. But the Ravens played absolutely great in this game. I, I'm not going to say absolutely great. They played well considering the injuries and not having some of their key players winning 27 to 24 on the road to stay undefeated after kind of a rough week one. You see Lamar Jackson go on Twitter, talk about how it wasn't a great week one for him. You're down two key O-linemen, two key secondary players. You clamp Joe Burrow in the Bengals, which might not be much through two weeks of the year. You don't let them get to the quarterback. No sacks on Lamar Jackson. He was barely pressured. And I mean, what more can you say about the depth of the Baltimore Ravens stepping up? And again, the Bengals had no reason to lose this football game. None. Again, Ravens down. All the people that they had. Joe Burrow tweaks his calf, unfortunately. They only score in the first half due to special teams. The Bengals have to adjust here. They have to be better. And I understand when you don't have your best player and your superstar quarterback play in preseason and he's dealing with a calf injury, that's going to show. I mean, maybe you can look at Zach Taylor some. Yeah, like we know he's a good coach, but his co- his job was in question before the Bengals started slipping this year. The Bengals had very, very high expectations coming in. Very high expectations coming in. So when you look at the fact that the Bengals had no reason to lose this game, and they do, that's why they're on my panic meter at 0-2. That is why the Cincinnati Bengals are not able to perform the way that they want to this year. Joe Burrow's injury, not playing in preseason, big contract. How's head coaching looking? I mean, the Bengals just have to get it together. They have some rust to shake off. They've started 0-2 again past couple of seasons. They make the AFC Championship. Or not 0-2 the past couple of seasons, but, you know, we've seen the Bengals kind of fall into fall into this hole at times. This is the worst our defense played versus Baltimore since Burrow came into the league. Yeah, I hate Baltimore, but credit where it's due. They were the better team from the very beginning. Yeah, they took control, man. They took control from the very beginning. They never let up on it. Um, and ultimately the, you know, the Ravens really did deserve to win this football game. And and there's no complaints about that, right? Like the Ravens played well enough with a ton of injuries on the road in a divisional game and they won close. So, so be it for him. Like hats off to him. No doubt. What I thought was going to be possibly the best game of the weekend, Chiefs and Jaguars, Chiefs win 17 to nine was Patrick Mahomes versus Trevor Lawrence was a coaching showdown of Andy Reid and Doug Peterson was two of the top seven, eight teams in the NFL facing off for what could be a potential AFC title game matchup in the Chiefs and the Jaguars. And oh, what your best players will absolutely do for you in key moments in a close game where you got to pull out all the stops and really make things happen. Chris Jones comes back, one and a half sacks. Travis Kelsey comes, excuse me, Travis Kelsey comes back. Might have only been four catches for 26 yards, but it was a touchdown. Travis Kelsey scores a touchdown in his return. Chris Jones has his hand in two very key defensive, very key defensive plays with one and a half sacks. So your best players can do a lot for you. And I will say, if there's no Kelsey and no Chris Jones in this game, we're possibly talking about the Chiefs panicking at 0-2. But you know, could we really panic if they didn't have those two players also in this game as we uh, in this game as well? It was a big bounce back win for Kansas City, no doubt. Even though they were penalized 12 times for 94 yards, we heard. The refs heard how the Chiefs got away with all the false starts from Jawan Taylor against the Lions literally all night. Well, not in this game. Jawan Taylor flagged five times 
for those false starts. Kansas City also turns the ball over three times in the first half. A couple of fumbles. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes does have the interception, but he learns to spread the ball around. Again, tying a career high with complete passes to 11 different receivers, 305 passing yards, two touchdowns, the interception that I did talk about. Sky Moore gives you a bounce back game with 70 receiving yards and a touchdown on three catches. Kadarius Toney, who had a ton of drops, drops no passes in this game. Finished with 35 yards on five catches, catching all five of his targets. Mahomes does his thing with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter, scrambling around, stopping, planning, and just throwing a nice overhead pass to Sky Moore that kind of put it down and sealed the game against the Jaguars. And, you know, the Chiefs come out of the half and do what they're supposed to do, right? They don't look too good in the first half. They come out of the half, which only had four total rushing attempts in the first half. They come out immediately, go 81 yards down the field on seven plays. They get their best player outside of Mahomes in position on the offensive side of the ball, score the touchdown with Travis Kelsey, but the Chiefs just have to get more balanced offensively. I mean, we can't continue to have it be the Patrick Mahomes show where they can't. Yes, Patrick Mahomes is special. He's a magician. He can do just about anything. He can make any throw. Is any moment too big for him? But when you start to really rely on the Sky Moors and Kadarius Tonys and the Rasheed Rices of the world whenever he'll start to get his implementation, it makes you wish that they would have possibly kept that Miko Hardman, who, yes, had you know rumors of not running the greatest routes and maybe not grasping the offense, but he was a, you know, a pick out of Georgia for a reason. Miko Hardman was a major player at Georgia during some great seasons. Obviously, he's on now. You know, he's gone to the New York Jets, but the Chiefs have to get more balanced offensively because like we've seen when I was talking about Colorado and college football, You know, when we're talking about um, Matthew Stafford later on in the show here, dropping back for over 50 times in a game, 55 dropbacks. Yes, Mahomes is the one to do that, but that eventually wears on your body time and time and time again. And you got to give a shout out to the Chiefs Chiefs defense, right? Holding the Lions the way that they did in week one to 14 offensive points, nine points in this game. The Chiefs have given up 25 total points in the NFL season with their defense. Third downs were an absolute strong suit defensively for the Kansas City Chiefs. They went 0 for 2, excuse me, they held the Jags to 0 for 2 on fourth downs, and they didn't let the, uh, excuse me, the Jags did not get into the red zone one time in this game. The front seven stuffed the run. They held Calvin Ridley in check, which was big after he had a huge first game. The Jags recorded just 271 yards of total offense, and that was actually the fewest points scored in a win for the Chiefs since week nine of 2021. Big credit to the defense. They hold a struggling Jags offense as of right now. Trevor Lawrence and the Jags offense has not looked good in the first two weeks of the year, really struggling on third down and big time with efficiency. Just a couple numbers here. Uh, They didn't score a touchdown in this game, Jacksonville. They went three for 12 on third down and 0 for three in the red zone. Trevor Lawrence was 22 of 41, so damn near 50% in this game, 216 yards. Travis Etienne had 12 carries for 40 yards. Christian Kirk had 11 passes caught for 110. Calvin Ridley was held to two for just 32. Andy Reid was not going to get beat by Calvin Ridley. Steve Spagnola has got this defense in a great spot, and they were not going to get beat by the Jags arguably, blessed, Jags arguably best player offensively outside of Trevor Lawrence, and I guess if you want to throw Travis Etienne into that mix as well. But the big thing was there were three times where either Zay Jones or Calvin Ridley just couldn't get two feet down in this game. So they had some good plays drawn up against a very well-put-together Spags defense, but the Jaguars only scored six points on three possessions inside the Chiefs' 20. So I think I misspoke there earlier when I said that, um, what's it called? 
excuse me, not that they didn't get in the red zone once, talking about the Chiefs defense standing up against the Jags. They didn't get in the end zone, not one time. No touchdown scored on the day. And it's horrible to see it when you have three first-half turnovers on the, 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 the Chiefs, who are an elite team, two fumbles, an interception. You got themselves fumbling right after they get a fumble from the Chiefs. They win the turnover battle against an elite team, and they couldn't turn it into offense. They're bad again on third down, just like they were against Indianapolis. I want to say they were three. They they only had three third down conversions against Indianapolis. I know that. I don't know if it's three of nine, three of ten, three of twelve, something around there. The Jags got to get it together offensively. Yes, they put up thirty-one points in Week One. You're also talking about a Colts defense who did do their job to hold the Jags and Trevor Lawrence in the check. But you're also wondering, like, what are the Jags really going to do to adjust here? Doug Peterson is a good coach. Trevor Lawrence is a great quarterback. They've got a lot of talent on the offense. They are working some new things in with Calvin Ridley, obviously, you know, trying to find some spots for Zay Jones as well, who had a score last week. Zay Jones and Ridley could have had more scores this week. But this isn't the offense that we were expecting from the Jacksonville Jaguars. This is not the, the Trevor Lawrence, the Doug Peterson, the offensive, you know, camaraderie that we were expecting here from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, I do give them grace. It's a Steve Spagnola defense they went up against. It's the Super Bowl champions that they went up against. But you're at home. You force three turnovers on an elite team, and you're not able to turn it into offense. You don't even get in the end zone. 0 for 3 in the red zone, 3 for 12 on third down. Absolutely devastating. But you guys get in the chat, get in the comments, let me know what you think about the Chiefs and the Jags in this game. Kansas City has to balance out the offense more. The defense is the story of this team now, only giving up 25 total points in the NFL season. And the Jags have to find themselves offensively. They're horrible on third down. Now, they're averaging 20 points per game over two two games. But when you don't even score a touchdown and you have an offer in the red zone, you're crap on money downs, that's not going to win you a lot of football games in the National Football League. Which 2-0 NFL teams are legit? Is it going to be 2-0 or is it going to be 2-0? We've got a couple more games to get into here on the show. We're going to hit our power rankings. Damn, this show is packed. I tell myself all the time, like, you got to leave these games off, dude. You cannot keep putting so many games on the slate, but I, I love football, guys. I love football. It's the NFL with AJL for a reason. I, didn't, I don't expect to give you guys an hour and a half or a two-hour show sometimes. I really don't. I got to get off here by nine. <laughs> I got to. I'm just absolutely running away with it on the show. Two and O or two and no. Which two and O NFL teams are legit? The Dolphins. I think the Dolphins are two and O. Their offense is clearly clicking. You want to see them do it against better defensive things. Now they did do that against the Patriots. We're going to get into Dolphins Patriots later in the show. The Dolphins do it so far this year offensively. We saw what they were able to do last year when they kept Tua upright. They had the claim for one of the best offenses in the league. They're one of the fastest teams in the league. Tua slowly turning into a great elite quarterback in front of us. Mike McDaniel's coaching with this team is absolutely impeccable. And you've got that Vic Fangio defense on the back end. This can be a team that's balanced so far. They can do it in a, in a multitude of different ways, and I don't think the Dolphins should be scoffed at. The Ravens. I'm going to go two and no. Only because they're hurt. Only because of kind of how shaky it's been. Again, you're very hurt in week two. Week one, you play against the Texans. It's week one, you're working the kinks out. If the Ravens can get healthy, they can be 2-0. They can be a legit 2-0 undefeated team. 
they could contend for the Super Bowl with Lamar Jackson, with a receiving core like we just talked about, with that tight end game and Mark Andrews. Once they get healthy on the defensive side of the ball, like we know this Ravens culture that can be very smash mouth defensively and be one of the scariest teams in the NFL. The Dallas Cowboys, as much as I want to say two and no, because we've seen this before, we know what the Cowboys are, they blow out bad teams, and they choke in the playoffs. But the way that they're dominating right now, 30 to 10, 40 to nothing, they've won the season 70 to 10 in the NFL through the first two weeks of the season. You can't scoff at that. Micah Parsons is playing out of his mind. Now they're quietly struggling on offense, and the defense is kind of covering it up some, just like we saw with Pittsburgh. But with the Dallas Cowboys here being 2-0, I mean, what can you say? Again, I get it. They're blowing out the Jets without Aaron Rodgers, and they're blowing out the Giants on Sunday Night Football 40 to nothing. Primetime games kind of take an L in week one of the year. But the Dallas Cowboys being 2-0, they're too loaded. They're too dominant right now for me to not say otherwise. The Philadelphia Eagles, I'm also going to say a legit 2-0 team as well. Super Bowl runner-ups. They're still kind of adjusting with Brian Johnson. They're able to balance it out between the run and the pass game. The defense has a lot of players. We know the Eagles are really in good hands. They just got to work out some things with their two new coordinators that they have up in the stepping up with things. The Washington Commanders. Their offense is good. 28 points per game. I'm going to say two and no, though. Arizona Cardinals, Denver Broncos. You could say they're legit 2-0 and because Sam Howell under Eric Bieniemy is not looking too bad. And you might have wondered, okay, why did I just put the Cowboys at 2-0? and Because they're not playing a lot of people either. But it's the dominance of the Cowboys. Now, the Commanders are, again, 2-0. and They beat the Cardinals. They have to come back on them. And then, or excuse me, they beat a tough game against the Cardinals. And then they, they win in a shootout against the... Um, they went in a shootout against the, the Broncos, which I don't really know if you can say much there, but I don't expect the commanders in year one of Eric Bieniemy under Sam Howell with some things to still work out to really be a 2-0 team. The Niners are a legit 2-0 team. I have no doubt about that. The San Francisco 49ers are a loaded team offensively and defensively. Brock Purdy kind of does come back to life this past weekend, but with Kyle Shanahan, with that defense, with the way they are arguably the most balanced team in the NFL, the Niners have to be a legit 2-0 team. And everyone in the NFC South besides the Carolina Panthers. The Falcons, I'm going to say they're 2-0 because of Desmond Ritter, because of the fact that I haven't seen that offense click like it really should be so far this year. The defense is good. Back-to-back games in the fourth quarter, I feel like they're stepping up big and really doing what that defense needs to do. But the Falcons, being a 2-0 team, I really don't trust them to keep up this level of success throughout the year. Now, they could be you know, an 8-9 or nine win team. I don't remember off the top of my head how many games I have them winning. But 2-0 with the Falcons, first time above, above 500 really after last week, week one, you know, uh, first time in a long time they've been above 500. But I'm going to stick with 2-0 here. Now, if Desmond Ritter can prove us wrong, then the Falcons can easily be a legit 2-0 team. The Bucks, I'm going to say they're 2-0 as well solely because of the fact they're led by a defensive-minded head coach and Baker Mayfield. Now, the Bucs are undefeated. Again, that's why they're in this segment. They look good against the Vikings team. They hold them off. They clearly look good against a, um, damn, who did the Bucs just play? Jesus Christ. I cannot remember who the Bucs just played. Oh, they beat the Bears. So, you know, that, that's kind of the reason there. Like, Bears, eh, arguably still one of the worst teams. They are one of the worst teams in the league still. We see the, um, you know, Vikings kind of struggling against them. So you have to give them credit for that. They're 2-0 and for a reason, but I don't believe they're really going to be competing at the end of the year. And then my New Orleans Saints, 
who are 2-0, and one of the nine NFL teams in the season that is 2-0. and I'm going to say we're 2-0 and right now because we still have plenty to clean up. Offensive line, Derek Carr decisions, running game can still be stronger. Defensive side of the ball is great. Turn that defense into offense, though, and I think you can easily be a legit 2-0 and NFL team. We're an hour and a half here in on the podcast. This is the NFL with AJL episode 41. Please make sure to like the stream, subscribe wherever you're at, share the stream wherever you're watching. Y'all are crushing it for me on social media at the NFL with AJL on all social media platforms or the QR code here will give you every bit of social media and podcast content for your enjoying pleasure. At Buy and Sell with AJL for all your worldwide professional real estate needs, whether you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, or invest in real estate, make sure you get it Buy and Sell with AJL. Get in the comments or get at them on social media. Drop your email for their exclusive newsletter. Or if you want to get on the in on their AI that they just implemented with their business at, as well. Stay ahead of the daunting media headlines. Stay ahead of what all of the people that are calling the crash are trying to tell you. It's still a solid time to buy real estate. This time right now is kind of similar to the 70s and 80s when we had 18 to 19% interest rates. People are at that 7 and 8% in the market. They don't want to move off the 2, 3, and 4 that they bought with. Why would they sell with that? All the more reason to have these questions answered and more as you get in tapped, get tapped in with buy and sell with AJL. We're going to hit another two-minute break here, get into the last bit of the show. Man, we're packed, and we'll be right back. back into the NFL with AJL episode 41 as this is one of the most packed shows one of the most loaded longest podcasts I've ever had angle lie y'all I'm tired I gotta adjust with some of these games here I'm still gonna get through it all we're still gonna get through the last three games and the power rankings 
But uh, maybe talking 11 games every week isn't for the lighthearted. The Niners beat the Rams in an interesting game, though, 30-23, to as the Rams were a team I didn't expect to be very good this year. I had them winning five games, being one of the worst rosters in the league, but the Rams are slowly proving me wrong as Sean McVay has a hell of a coaching output with all of these rookies, all of these very young players. We even hear Matthew Stafford on a podcast, his wife Kelly leaks it and says, hey, he's kind of struggling meshing with these younger players. Like, it feels so weird to play with all these younger players, talking about how they're on their phones a lot after the game. So for the Niners to come in and win 30-23 to is a very interesting win because you think that they would win by more, but San Francisco gets their ninth straight regular season win over the Rams and their 12th straight regular season win as well. In the first half of this game, I mean, the D-line was literally getting zero pressure on Matthew Stafford. The Rams O-line was really doing a nice job against every combination of players that San Francisco really rolled out. But Stafford was getting comfortable on those short throws, and the Rams were just finding a ton of success, kind of like how Tua was against the Dolphins. We'll, again, get into that a little later. Um, Excuse me, Tua against the Patriots. But you look, Steve Wilkes really had to adjust because in the second half, the 49ers became a lot more blitz-prone. The result was an uptick of a 15% blitz rate in the first half to a 43% blitz rate in the second half. That was the highest uptick in a while for a blitz package to go from the first half to the second half. And the result was nine pressures in that second half compared to no pressures in the first half. But you got to love the aggression here of the Niners, right? I mean, they're down 17-10, one second left in the first half. And the Rams were about to get the ball back because of the second half kickoff. But instead of just taking the three points, because really 17-10 is the same as 17-3 when you're about to give the ball back to the opposing team and you're down, Kyle, Kyle Shanahan dials up the quarterback sneak from inside the Rams, one to get over the goal line and make it a, a tied game at 17-all at this point. So it was really a right call to be aggressive and, and go for it here. But they need to get Brandon Ayuk back 100%. Of course, we see him leave this game. Um, you know, that, or yeah, we do see him get hurt in this game. So we want to see him come back healthy to a Niners team that values him so highly next to a CMC, next to a Devo Samuel, next to a George Kittle. But Brock Purdy on Sunday for the first time in his career as a starter, didn't throw two touchdowns in a game. He didn't notch a, pa- notch a passer rating of 95 or more for the first time as a starter. Four badly missed throws that really could have turned into a 7.9ers swing or really even a 7.9ers win. Excuse me. That might have turned a 7.9ers win into more of a runaway if he hadn't have had some of those four bad throws. He missed some deep shots to Brandon Ayuk, to Debo Samuel, Jawan Jennings, and all of those really could have gone for touchdowns. So the Niners could have won really going away in this game. He also had a misfire on a third down slant late to Debo Samuel, you know, later in the game. But the good news is, despite not a great game from Brock Purdy, he was still efficient with eight point efficient with 8.2 yards per attempt, and he didn't turn the ball over at all. So if Sunday really was any indication of what Brock Purdy can be outside of his best self, it really feels like the Niners might be okay in this aspect. Hats off to Puka Nakua for the Los Angeles Rams. Hats off to Matthew Stafford. Hats off to Sean McVay with how they've played so far in this season with such low expectations, as low as you know, bottom five teams in the NFL for a lot of power rankings. Puka Nakua, excellent in the opener, 10 catches for 119, but he was even better against the Niners, caught 15 passes on 20 targets, 147 yards receiving on the day. He's the first player in NFL history with 10 catches and 100 yards in each of his first two career games. He now owns the league record for the most catches in his first two games with 25, and his 15 catches were the most ever by a rookie in one game. Sean McVay hit on this guy. 
we're all wondering, like, who the hell is this? Where is this draft pick coming from? Who is this guy coming out? We've already seen a 2-2 Atwell who we're not super satisfied with. We've already seen a Van Jefferson, you know, who we're not super satisfied with. So, so, so who is this guy? Possibly the next coming of Cooper Cup when you don't have Cooper Cup in your lineup. And Sean McVay is a great salesman. He knows how to draft. He knows how to evaluate. He knows how to win players over. I say more of that salesman aspect when he went over OBJ and they go on to win the Super Bowl because OBJ was a great weapon. But Sean McVay knows how to pick them. He knows how to draft these guys. And really with Van Jefferson having a tough game next to Puka Nakua, it looks like he's going to be out of the lineup, probably bench once Cooper Cup comes back. But the 49ers ran it 28 times for 159 yards on the ground, three total touchdown. Christian McCaffrey, touchdown, 20 attempts, 16 yards. Debo Samuel had five carries for 38 and a touchdown. Brock Purdy added five yards with a sneak and a touchdown as well. So the Rams have to be better against the run because right now that is without question the Rams' biggest defense, or excuse me, the Rams' biggest weakness is on the run defense. Kyron Williams, though, this guy is absolutely balling out for L.A. 14 carries, uh, 52 yards and a score, six passes caught for 48 yards and another touchdown. So through two games, this guy has four touchdowns, 152 total yards from scrimmage. He's pretty good in pass protection, which kind of you know showed up a few times on Sunday against San Francisco, if we're being honest. And he can be that every down back with his versatility if he has to. Like he doesn't have to be possibly swapped off. You know, we see Cam Akers that's kind of getting pulled in and pulled out. He seems like he was the better decision and really that better upgrade over Cam Akers when you look at, at testament to Sean McVay's coaching. Byron Young finished the game with five tackles, another young rookie here, one sack, two quarterback hits. In the fourth, he did a great job, set the edge there on the outside run, allowed his teammates to rally to the football for uh, for a stop at the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, in the fourth quarter, mentioning that play there from him. But talk about Matthew Stafford getting comfortable. When he was realizing that 15% blitz percentage right there, he was dealing in his first 40 minutes of the game. 22 of 26 with a touchdown. Then one of his passes go through the previously mentioned uh, Kyron Williams' hands for a pick. Offense came to a dead screeching halt right there. After that, 12 of 29 to end the game. He still played okay, but one throw is going to absolutely haunt him. You see the, the interception to Lenar in the fourth quarter. Matthew Stafford being Matthew Stafford after time and time again. They shouldn't have went to the Super Bowl the year that they did. It should have been the Niners, but Jimmy Ward or Charvarius Ward, if I'm not mistaken, actually drops the interception that Matthew Stafford would have thrown. And even in the end of the regular season, he drops the interception. Excuse me. Even in the end of the regular season, the interception was dropped. Or no, in the end of the regular season, the year they went to the Super Bowl, he throws a game-ending interception as well. Does the same thing here basically to end the game. Y'all give me a second. But yeah, Matthew Stafford, while he was comfortable before they dialed up the blitz packages, he was absolutely dealing in this game. And yeah, I mean, if Coop was playing, yeah, if Cooper Cup was playing, then they would have, you know, probably beaten the Niners. Yeah, Stafford has his receiver drop a pass that was intercepted, could have been a touchdown, but instead it went to the Niners. Yeah, you doubling down on my point right there, man. No doubt about it. You know, but, you know, at the time when the Rams or Stafford had thrown that pick in the fourth quarter, they were only trailing 27 to 20 with a chance to tie the game in the fourth. But this pick literally set the 49ers up with a great field position, and they turned it into a field goal to go up 30 to 20. They obviously lose the football game 30 to 23. 
But you got to credit Sean McVay with a coaching man. You can't save Stafford, though. You can't have him throwing 55 times a game, getting gashed up in the run game, depending on a lot of young players, which is absolutely okay. Again, Kyron Williams, Puka Nakua, or Puka Nakua, um, Byron Johnson, or is it Byron Johnson or Byron Jones? Excuse me, Byron Young. Lord, let me slow down. Um, so, you know, credit to Sean McVay, credit to what he's been able to do with the offense in Kyron Williams and Puka Nakua and in, or Puka Nakua and Tutu Atwell, even in terms of, or in the absence of Cooper Cup and some other big players. And with some of the defensive players that are stepping up as well, you take a look at the fact that the Niners didn't have the best day at the office from Purdy, but they do adjust in that second half, start sending more of a blitz at 43% up from 28% in the first half when they were at a 15% blitz rate and absolutely making it tough on Matthew Stafford, the aggression to go for it. Um, you know, the aggression to go for it with Brock Purdy on the QB sneak. The Sean Payton era, excuse me, the Sean Payton era is off to a very, very, very underwhelming start. A very underwhelming start. The Broncos blow a 21-3 lead, an 18-point home lead to now be 0-2 on the season. The reason that they're in my 0-2 panic meter and ultimately why it's such an underwhelming start for Sean Payton. At home, your first two games are at home, and you have Washington claw back to score 18 unanswered points and outscore Denver until Denver kicked a field goal with under two minutes left in the game, and then, of course, they had the Hail Mary pass. Denver scored a single touchdown after they went up by 17 points, and that came on a Hail Mary pass on the final play of the game. Of course, they don't have the two-point conversion. And, you know, they total three sacks from three separate defenders on the opponent's first three offensive series, talking about the commanders, trying to, you know, stifle that Eric Bieniemy offense, that Sam Howell run offense. But they only finished the game with four total sacks. Rush and Sean Payton really looked good in the first half, but Washington adjusted. Denver didn't. So it kind of feels like Ron Rivera outcoached Sean Payton here in a way, really for a lot in the second half. Denver's first four drives of the second half resulted in two punts, a field goal, and an interception, while Washington produced three touchdowns on its first four drives in the second half, so a complete adjustment game. Sean Payton could not adjust, and the Commanders did. The other series resulted in a missed field goal, talking about the Washington Commanders. <clears throat> but you got to give the credit to Washington. You got to give the credit to Eric Bieniemy. I know they haven't played anyone, but really Bieniemy has been this offensive piece and X factor to get them clicking. And it's funny because we hear about, oh God, Eric Bieniemy's coaching his players too hard. Ron Rivera, this, that, and the third. Like, what's going to happen with his actual players? Where would Sean Payton breathe without Drew Brees? I could play devil's advocate and ask you, where would Drew Brees be without Sean Payton? And that's coming from a major Saints fan. We can say that it was Drew as of right now because Sean is 0-2. But realistically, I don't know if we can really hold weight to that because we're only two games into the season. And ultimately, the Sean Payton and Russell Wilson relationship really just, just has to grow more if we're going to expect anything out of this. But speaking of Eric Bieniemy, Washington here with Sam Howell. Sam Howell's now 3-0 as a starter. They have one of the best offenses in terms of points per games right now. Again, yes, it's against the Broncos and against the Cardinals. But on Sunday, Sham Howell literally had his best game yet. He faced pressure. He kept his eyes downfield like a pro. He delivered multiple big-time throws. Brian Robinson was big-time getting him into some screen plays. The O-line was promising. And really, if they can stay healthy, you talk about Cosme and Wiley absolutely showing out and proving their worth in this game. Defense steps, uh, steps up. They sacked Russell Wilson seven times, held him to just above 50% completion in this game. And Chase Young was absolutely back. 
He played a lot more than that was expected, though. He impacts the game with multiple pressures on Russell Wilson. And really on the play that kind of turned the game on its head and turned it around, you had the Jameen Davis force fumble when he sacked Russell Wilson. It was Chase Young who got in there, forced that pressure from the pocket. He finished with three tackles, one and a half sacks, and two quarterback hits. So just like with Chris Jones stepping back into that Chiefs defense being a vital piece, when Chase Young, the defensive rookie of the year when he was drafted, comes in and plays the way he does with a promising offense as of right now, again, they win in a shootout, 35-33. to 33. They're down by 18 points on the road to a Sean Payton and Russell Wilson-led offense, to a Sean Payton-led team. And you have the Broncos being 0-2, very underwhelming, very, very underwhelming start versus the Commanders fighting with everything they got in Sam Howell, Terry McLaurin, Brian Robinson, Eric Bieniemy is the OC, Ron Rivera is a defensive-minded head coach. A defensive-minded-led head coaching team right now has almost 28 points per game in the NFL. That's impressive. So I got to give credit to Washington here for what they did in this game. Sean Payton has no excuse to blow a 21-3 lead, an 18-point lead at home, give up 18 unanswered, not score a single touchdown after you go up by your 17 just to hit that Hail Mary on the final play of the game. Excuse me, you only scored that single touchdown. It was a prayer, a tip drill that Ron Rivera is probably pissed about because you're just supposed to bat that down. We saw when Georgia lost to Auburn off of the Hail Mary with Nick Marshall, if I'm not mistaken. Damn, I just threw myself back there. But y'all get in the chat in the comments, and and really, y'all let me know what you think about the Broncos being 0-2, blowing this major lead to the Washington Commanders early in the season, or excuse me, early in the season. Obviously, they're at home. The Sean Payton era not turning out very well. You have an onside kick that leads to really a, a touchdown that proves to be crucial in your loss to the Raiders. And then you blow an 18-point lead at home. Russell Wilson looks good in the first half. He really did. Russell Wilson looked very solid in the first half. Couple of passing touchdowns. He had Marvin Mims out there. Possibly trying to compensate for Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton. And Sean Payton cannot get this team where he needs them to be. At least for right now in September football. We know September and October football kind of fool's gold. We'll talk about after week four, you know, in a couple shows of who were the actual contenders and pretenders in this league based off what we've seen and based off record. And I don't know if the Denver Broncos are going to be there right now. You don't want to continue to see this dink and dunk that Sean Payton had in his days with the New Orleans Saints toward the later tenure, take a year off, and then feels like he can't capitalize with this loaded roster and really with Russell Wilson. Y'all don't want to say that the roster is loaded, but I look at both sides of the ball and they've got talent everywhere. Randy Gregory, Patrick Sertan, obviously Russell Wilson, Jerry Judy, little bit getting a little bit of Adam Troutman, not calling him crazy talented, but... Sean Payton knows how to get players onto his team. He knows how to draft. We saw what he did with the New Orleans Saints. And it's a very, very alarming thing here to know that Sean Payton in two home games is now 0-2, losing to a bad Raiders team who just got blown out by the Bills by 28 and a Commanders team with nobody having expectations. But the Commanders are 2-0. I got to give them credit. They, they sack Russell Wilson seven times. They get a very key strip sack on him. So you don't like to see the commanders or from a Broncos perspective, you don't want to lose 35 to 33 in a shootout at home. And again, a 21 to three lead and you lose 35 to 33. You get outscored 35, excuse me, 32 to 14. Is that right? Hold on. Yeah. 32 to, or no, excuse me. Yeah. 35 to 14 outscored 35 
to 14 in this game after they go up 21 to three. And we kind of saw Sean Payton do that at some points in New Orleans. We saw New Orleans have some big leads get away from them. We saw against the Rams, not only in the NFC title game, but in the same year when they beat them 45 to 35. You're up 13 nothing at home in a playoff game. So unfortunately, this isn't outside of Sean Payton's actual realm of kind of what we see him do. The last NFL game here on this packed almost two-hour podcast before we get into our NFL Week 3 power rankings and then get out of here. The Dolphins and Patriots played a very solid football game as the Dolphins get away with the win of 27 to 24 and really showing, excuse me, 24 to 17 and really showing people how versatile they can be in this league. It doesn't have to be with a shootout. It doesn't have to be in a shootout with the Los Angeles Chargers, but they still average 6.6 yards per play talking about the Dolphins against a New England defense that last week held the Eagles to one of their worst offensive performances in recent seasons. And Miami scored touchdowns on two of their three red zone opportunities as well against this New England defense. They're showing that they can be versatile, they can win shootouts, but they can also put up points against a tough defense at a premium, take the intermediate and short throws to a living to see another day. Mike McDaniel making those adjustments against a very stout Bill Belichick defensive-led culture and defensive, you know, uh, great defensive unit. I mean, Christian Gonzalez got his first pick off Tua. But the Patriots could not turn around and turn that into offense. And again, Bill Belichick did his thing. Listen to this. He played three high safety, bracketed Tyreek Hill. I mean, he wasn't going to get beat after what Tyreek did in week one against the Chargers. Bill Belichick makes you play left-handed. He takes your best piece away from you. That is Bill's trademark. Miami still had six players catch multiple passes, five of them having a gain of at least 15 yards on one of those grabs. Raheem Mostert still rushed 18 times for 121 yards and two touchdowns in his final 43-yard burst that really put the game away in the fourth. And Tua showed that he can live on the short need immediate throws. You go look at his passing chart. Not a lot of deep shots. Not a lot of deep plays. That single high, or excuse me, that three high safety, I'll get to it in a second with the Patriots, was the most that was ever played since the stat was tracked in 06. Bill Belichick doesn't give a damn about trends and stats and numbers. If that's what he's got to do to take it away from you and win the game, he is absolutely going to do that. No question about it. To his passing chart, a lot of short and intermediate stuff outside the numbers over in the middle of the field. He wasn't throwing on that three high safety look. He was not getting beat. Bill was not getting beat by Jalen Waddell and Tua. It just wasn't happening. And the Dolphins actually held the run game in check. Ramon J. Stevenson, Ezekiel Elliott, those guys struggled on 20 carries for 63 yards combined. You got Bradley Chubb forcing an early fumble. And then you've even got X Howard as well, picking off Mac Jones at the end of the third quarter. Lord. Um, sorry, the lady's asking me. Look, I'm on the show so late. She asked me what I want for dinner. I can't ignore her. I'm going miss to uh, miss my shot. What do you want from Zaxby's chicken finger plate? No slaw. Sub toast. I'll be like, yeah, I know. I told you I was going to be off by nine. But she already typed him again. Like what you want? You didn't see it. That's where I'm heading. I don't want to cook. No, I don't blame you. All right, y'all. Sorry. Sorry. Had to, had to get the order placed here on episode 41. So we can continue to have an episode 42. See what she said. <laughs> She's going to laugh at me when she looks back on the show and be like, wow, you were literally texting me your order on the show. 
But the Dolphins had the run game in check. Ramondre Stevenson, Ezekiel Elliott, 20 carries on 63 yards. Bradley Chubb had that early force fumble. X Howard picked off Mac, ended that third quarter drive where the Patriots really had a chance to get into the league. X Howard coming in with the clutch interception. Just wait until Jalen Ramsey is really back with this defense. And this might, and now that's not going to be till December, but that's going to be an even scarier thing to see knowing that Jalen Ramsey will be back with this defense and and honestly might make them even more lethal than they already were before. Miami won the turnover battle despite being despite the time of possession being even and third down New England was 7 for 15, four sacks on the night. That was that Vic Fangio defense. That was that Vic Fangio defense that dialed up those very um you know those blitzes with Bradley Chubb and Christian Wilkins against the Chargers. When Brandon Staley got out coached and Justin Herbert goes down on later drives in the game so the Dolphins can win the shootout, that's that Vic Vangio defense literally on display. And that was a great hire for them. We know Sean Payton wanted them. We know a lot of teams in the league wanted Vic Fangio as their offensive coordinator. And Vic Fangio is providing it time and time again. And again, just wait until Jalen Ramsey is back. Splash plays for the Dolphins. You got Jalen Waddle on a 32-yard catch, Raheem Mostert on a 43-yard run, River Craycraft on a 22-yard pass, The Dolphins had five different receivers with at least one catch that gained more yards than the Patriots' longest gain of the night. I'll read that again. The Dolphins had five different receivers with at least one catch, at least one, that had more yards gain than the longest yard gain for the Patriots in the entire game. Spreading the ball out, run after the catch with the Dolphins, and the Patriots need to be able to move the football. When you force a turnover on Tua with one of your best defensive players as a rookie in Christian Gonzalez, you got to start making things happen. But, you know, just some takeaways from the Patriots here. So New England held Miami's offense really mostly in check throughout the first quarter of this game. And, of course, some of that was, um, you know, the Dolphins only did one run one drive through the first quarter, which was 13 plays to go 81 yards. They only get a field goal out of it. But the Patriots really developed kind of a unique defense designed to limit that Miami passing attack that exploded literally for 17 plays of at least 15 yards in the season opener, which is the most in any NFL game in 11 years since 2012. The Patriots had a defense that limited 17 plays by the Dolphins last week against the Chargers. The Dolphins had 17 plays of 15 more yards of at least 15 yards. There had never been more in any NFL game since 2012. So what New England did was they had a three-deep structure utilizing a ton of backed-up safeties on the 40. What they did, or excuse me, sorry, I'm just making sure I got some things lined up here, guys. Um, New England solution was a three-deep structure utilizing a trio of backed-up safeties on 40 of the 61 offensive snaps that the Dolphins had. That was the most in a game since at least 2006 when the metrics were first tracked. Nobody played more three high safety than Bill Belichick against this in this game against the Dolphins because he was committed to making them play left-handed. You're not going to get Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddle over me. I'm going to bracket them. I'm going to keep that backside of the field hooked up absolutely on lock so you can focus on those short and intermediate throws. You're going to have to beat us short and get some yards after the catch, which really, you know, the, the Dolphins were able to do in this football game, but credit to that Patriots defense again for what they were able to do, but they did as well as they could. The offense didn't capitalize on that block field goal or the two interception and they're 0-2 for the first time since 2001. And and this is why I had the Patriots only winning five games this year. They're outmatched in a lot of places talent wise on the offensive side of the ball. 
The offensive line is all out of sorts, especially at the right tackle position right now. And the Dolphins started piling up those quarterback pressures in the second half with the Patriots being in obvious passing situations. They try to mount a comeback here. Mac Jones was under pressure on 30.4% of his dropbacks in this game, sacked four times. And when you drop back 104 times in the first two weeks of the season, like Philadelphia and Miami are going to see that. They've got a Jalen Phillips and a Christian Wilkins to send out for you. Philadelphia's got all of those dogs on the defensive line to send after you. That defensive line coming off of 40 sacks, 10 sacks of four or more players, or 10 or more sacks from four players. Like, that's legendary. And the Pats defense not being able to capitalize off of defensive turnovers, that is solely on the offense. Bill Belichick's defense did as much as they could. The defense did as much as they could. Bill's control went as far as it could in this game. And a lot like the Steelers, the Patriots' offense was the reason that they weren't able to make things happen. So shout out to the Dolphins for playing versatile. Shout out to them for really making things happen on the road against a Patriots team where they had their best player taken away from them in terms of how the defensive scheme was. They pound the football well. They take what's given to them. And Tua has another nice day at the office as they win 24-17. to Let's go ahead and get into the NFL Week 3 Power Rankings as I am officially about to hit a two-hour podcast here on the show. NFL Week 3 Power Rankings as we head in. The top six stay the same. San Francisco wins in the divisional game on the road to, I guess, a decent team, right? The Rams are a team that is playing above expectations this year, and it's a divisional matchup. And with really with how the top six played out, Philadelphia wins close on the road, <clears throat> excuse me, to a decent team in the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, they are 0-2. Number three is Kansas City. They win close on the road to a good team in the Jacksonville Jaguars. No explanation there. Baltimore wins close on the road to a decent team despite being injury riddled. Maybe we can view the Bengals as a bad team right now. I don't really know if they're bad, but they are at least a decent team at this point, not elite because of how they're playing in the year. Jacksonville loses close at home to the Super Bowl champ, so I'm not going to drop them from five. Dallas stays in at six. They win at home to an Aaron Rodgers Jets, 30-10. to 10. They're winning the season 70-10 to 10 overall. And, you know, I could obviously move Dallas up above Jacksonville. And maybe I would realistically, obviously it's not here on the graphic, but if Dallas and Jacksonville played with the way Jacksonville has been through the first two first two games of the year, not being that great defensively, like Dallas might beat Jacksonville. So I guess I'll put Dallas at five, Jacksonville at six. Number seven, I have the Miami Dolphins. We just talk about them. When you play as versatile as you did, when you play as you know, really left-handed as you had to with not a big one from Tyreek and not a major one from Jalen Waddle, but you still take the short and intermediate. You take the what the defense is giving you against that elite Bill Belichick defense. Miami deserves their spot here at, um, Lord, let me see. I'm over here looking at my notes when I can really just see it right here. So Miami at number seven. New Orleans is going to jump in at number eight. Of course, they win that close game on the road to essentially kind of a bad uh, Panthers team, but it is a decent defense. It is a divisional game nonetheless. And, um, you know, New Orleans is 2-0. and They need to work out the offense, but I think when Kamara comes back, it could be one of the pop, you know, m- not as much of a pop gun offense, be one of those that actually goes for bigger plays and really feels well about it. I have us over Buffalo because I think if we did play Buffalo, Josh Allen melts in week one, yes, in a very emotional game, but against an elite Jets defense. And the Saints have an elite defense as well. Seattle's going to jump in at number 10. We got a shakeup here in the bottom six of it as the Chargers, the Broncos, 
and the Bengals fall out. I almost wanted to put Min- or excuse me, I almost wanted Minnesota to drop out as well. But week one, okay, we'll take that L you drop. But week two, you're losing to the Super Bowl runner-ups. So I'm not going to necessarily bag on you for that when like that's that's just who you played. And you lose 34 to 28 again in a one-score game to where you, after turning the ball over four times, wanted to see more from Philadelphia, and they still obviously didn't do you know, their thing. You could argue that Philadelphia could be pushed up to one because of them playing, I guess, a tougher team in Minnesota versus the um, you know, versus the Los Angeles Rams. But however you want to mix it up, these are accurate, obviously, for the most part. But yes, Seattle coming in at number 10, when you beat the Lions, who are, you know, a good team in the league right now, having the Lions below them at number 11, they were in my rankings last week. The Lions are number uh, at number nine. They fall to number 11 here in the rankings. You have Minnesota. Yes, Minnesota, Minnesota possibly should have fallen out. But again, when you lose to the Super Bowl champs, I'm not necessarily going to bag on you for losing in a close game. Yes, you do play badly and turn the football over plenty of times, but you still hang in there. You still play a good game against the Super Bowl runner-ups in the, um, excuse me, in the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. The Chargers, so I, excuse me, I didn't drop the Chargers out. The Chargers could have been a team that dropped out, but when you lose in a shootout to the Dolphins, who are a top team in this league, and you lose to a defensive, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you lose to a decent defense in this league, decent defensive team at that, a good, well-coached team in Mike Vrabel, yes, you're 0-2, but I believe the Chargers are better than what their record is reflecting because, of course, they could have won both football games. I'm not like, yes, your defense looked bad against Miami and Brandon Staley is kind of being questioned here. I don't know. Maybe I get a little nervous when I'm doing my power ranks on the show because they're just, they're just so tedious, right? I'm like, damn, can I put this team here? Can I move this team there? Going to have the Los Angeles Chargers at number 13. I'm giving them a little bit of grace. Washington sneaks in at the 14 spot, being 2-0. Put Dallas number one. That's fair. San Francisco number six. That's fair. I wouldn't argue with that. I don't know if I can put, I really don't think I could put San Fran below Phyllis and uh, Philadelphia and Kansas City, though, if I'm just being honest. So I, I probably would have to stand put with my rankings here. Thank you so much, Steve, for watching the entire show, man. I, I really appreciate you sticking in on literally the longest podcast that I've had uh, solo. Even when I did Petty Sports, you know, a couple years back, I did a two hour show on my birthday and felt like the big dog there. Uh, but yes, Washington coming in at number 14, being a 2-0 NFL team, engineering that good offense. Yes, they did only play the Cardinals, and they did only play the Denver Broncos, but 2-0, scoring the points the way they are, beating a Broncos team that I thought was going to be good. I mean, when you look at, like, who else are you going to put in? you got to put in Cincinnati? No, they've played horribly. you going to put in Cleveland? No, they haven't played well. you going to put in Pittsburgh? No, they haven't played super well. Like, let me look at some of my teams on the outside. The Rams? Eh, 1-1. One Tennessee, eh, they could kind of make a run for it, right? And you could argue that, you know, these teams can be pulled in and put into multiple places, right? And then Atlanta at number 15, being 2-0. and I know I said that they were 2-0, and but when you look at how they held off the Panthers, how they held off the Packers, yes, they possibly should have lost that Packers game. But, I mean, I like Atlanta over Tennessee right now. The way that Denver's playing right now, the way that Cincinnati's playing right now, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. I like the way that they're playing football over those other clubs right now, even the Rams. I like the way the Rams are playing football. They beat the Seahawks because the Seahawks get injured, but then they make their match and lose their ninth straight season, regular season game to the San Francisco 49ers. So from 15 to 1, Atlanta, Washington, LA, Minnesota, Detroit, Seattle, Buffalo, New Orleans, Miami, Dallas, Jacksonville, Baltimore, Kansas City, Philadelphia, and the San Francisco 
49ers. That was episode 41 of the NFL with AJL. What a packed show. Let's go ahead and get out of here. I have to start putting myself on a time crunch. Appreciate y'all tapping in again. That was episode 41 of the NFL with AJL. I appreciate everyone tapping into the show tonight. Steve Darby, the sports dude, Hind show, Chris G. Great to see everybody in the chat. Definitely some of the most action we've had in the chat in a very long time. As always, y'all make sure to like the stream before we get out of here tonight. Share the stream wherever you might be at. Subscribe on YouTube. As always, y'all are crushing it for me on social media at the NFL with AJL on all social media platforms. The QR code will give you every bit of social media and podcast content. We crushed it with 11 games reviewed this week, four college football games, seven NFL games. I gave you my power rankings. The most loaded podcast I've ever put out. Two hours and just about eight minutes. Episode 41 of the NFL with AJL. I appreciate everybody tuning in. You could have been any other show in the world tonight. But you're tapped in right here with me. Episode 42 coming on Friday. Clear we're going to have to scale back some of these Tuesday shows. Not include most of the, not excuse me, not, not, not include most of the games. Not include some of the games that maybe weren't as much of a puller. I wanted Chargers Titans to be on here. I think I even had another game or two, Seahawks Lions, that I wanted to talk about as well. I couldn't do this without you guys. This is my blood, sweat, tears, heart, and passion poured into this show. It is me, all me, from the moment news breaks to the moment you guys see the show to the moment it's put out on social media platforms. I love you, I need you, and I'll see you in episode 42.